This is Jocko Podcast number 239 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And also joining us tonight is Dave Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. So last podcast, we went through the Woo Z, which you did some you did some research, and we did not come up with the meaning of the word Woo Z other than room. Room. Okay, so Wuzi by Wu Qi from ancient China, a lot of solid leadership lessons in there. And I was thinking about these leadership principles and how leadership principles are not supposed to change, right? That's kind of, you know, I say, oh, you know, leadership principles stay the same. And when you read through the woozy, you start to get some supporting evidence to that because he's talking about the fact that you need to be benevolent and you need to treat people well and treat them with respect and take care of your people, which is all things that you know I talk about, we all talk about. But then in the woozy, it also says to execute anyone that disobeys your orders. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. so that leads you to think, well, maybe some principles have changed. And you know, I used to actually have a rationalization for this or an excuse for this. And what I would say is there's there's a difference in leadership when you're leading conscripts instead of volunteers. And so as leadership moved away from, or military leadership, and that, by the way, when you go back in time, it's not just military leadership, because what are the people? The people are serfs and peasants, and they're being led by these kings with divine power. So, but as time went by, it's like, okay, so that's why the leadership principle might not really fit. Maybe that's why it changes. But then I started thinking about that. What if you go ahead and actually let those things play out? Right, and actually, that question has been answered. Right, that's what history is. And what happens is, if you're executing people, if you're not treating people the right way as leaders, what happens eventually? What do you get? You get a revolution. You get people to come after you and take you out of power. And look, just like we talk about, you can get people on board for a little while, right? If if I have you know five thousand soldiers and they see me execute two people that didn't follow my orders, they're gonna follow my orders for a little while, right? Maybe for a long time, maybe since that extreme measure, maybe they'll follow my orders for a year, they'll just live in fear. But when that opportunity arrives for them to step up and take that power away from me, they're gonna do it. That's what we see play out. And then the other side, so so now we go to the side of, okay, so I'm gonna take care of my people. That's what I'm gonna do. But just like we say, that doesn't mean we coddle our people. Because if we coddle our people, then they're, they're soft and they destroy themselves. They, they fall apart. So, and we see that play out in the world. When a, when a society gets too soft, they can no longer survive. So even in ancient times with conscripts and and peasants and serfs and slaves, if you let things play out, the leadership principles still actually apply. And and then I started thinking about tactics, which this is another thing that I used to sort of, I used to, I used to sort of say the same thing about tactics, which is, hey, you know, 
the principles on the battlefield, they don't change until you go before the machine gun, right? Or the at least the gun, right? Because that's that's where you start to talk about covered move and that's where it really plays into plays into how you're going to fight. But then if you adjust your perspective a little bit, if we're fighting with spears and we're in a phalanx, guess what? I've got my shield. I'm holding my shield up. It protects the left part of my body and it tech protects the right part of the person to my left. And I am being protected, covered by the person on my right. And what we're gonna do is cover for each other as we advance with a phalanx. So we still have to look out for each other. Teamwork still absolutely applies. And then I was thinking about the fact that, you know, here's a, here's a, a military principle that I'm just trying to think of things that don't apply, right? Well, in modern combat, we follow a rule of dispersion, meaning we wanna be spread apart. We don't wanna be too close together. So that's obviously completely contrary to the idea of being in a phalanx where we're gonna get as close as we can, we're gonna keep tight, and we're gonna move forward. But if you change your perspective just a little bit, you, and this is, this is one of those doctrinal terms that I was able to uncover because of what I used to tell guys is, hey, if you're alone on the battlefield, you're gonna die. If you get too far away from your element, the other element, you can't support each other. That's what cover and move is. So if you're too far away, you're, you can't support each other and you will get killed because if we're alone, we die. And that, that doctrinal term that when I found it, I, I used to get these beautiful satisfactory, satisfactory moments in my life where I would have an idea and then I would see that it already existed. And, and that doctrinal term that I would then walk around as if I as if I knew it, you know, as if, as if it was just, you know, but it's called supporting distance. So you, Dave, shouldn't take your squad beyond where my range, the web, the range of my weapons. And then when you start to talk about that, that means, you know, communications as well. If I don't can't get, you know, communications with you, then I can't support you. If my weapons can't reach out and touch and give you support, then we're not in supporting distance and that's too far away. What does that mean? You just change your perspective a little bit and dispersion, which is positive, but if you get too far apart, it's negative. So these lessons are the same over time, and yet we still have to teach them because we still make mistakes. And when we learn things from a different angle, and even reading a document yesterday that's thousands, or the last podcast, a document that's thousands of years old, You'd think to yourself that after thousands of years, thousands of years, we would be talking about these leadership principles in the most commonly known way that everybody just, like, you know, I I couldn't have written extreme ownership because people would have been just, you know, saying, hey, no kidding, dude. What are you talking about? This is, this is, this is part of the fabric of life. But these things aren't, <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not the fabric of life. They're, they, they just seem to need to be rediscovered over and over again, which is, which is horrible. But one thing I think allows us to learn them in a more complete way is seeing them from different angles, from other experiences. And today we're gonna take a look at combat lessons, which you know when that's the name of the document, you're, you're setting up in a good spot. 
The subtitle, it's published in 1944, the subtitle is Rank and File in Combat. What they're doing, how they are doing it. So you know when I see that, I'm thinking, okay, we are going to learn something. So with that, we will bust into this book, Combat Lessons, number one. I've got number two. I'm sure it'll make an appearance in the future. The introduction to this thing, this is one of those things where you get done reading the introduction and maybe you don't even have to read anything else because <laughs> you're just almost there. Introduction. The purpose of combat lessons is to give our officers and enlisted men the benefit of the battle experiences of others, which comes right out of uh, learning, United States Marine Corps. To be of maximum benefit, these lessons must be disseminated without delay. They do not necessarily represent the carefully considered views of the War Department. They do, however, reflect the actual experiences of combat and therefore merit careful merit careful reading. For this reason, also, no single issue can cover many of the phases of combat. Lessons will be drawn from the reports as they are received from the theaters of operation and quickly disseminated so that others may apply them. The suggestions which are made or implied are not intended to change the tactical doctrine by which our army has been trained, but rather to elaborate thereon. Much of the subject matter has been covered in training literature, but the comments show that shortcomings continue to manifest themselves on the battlefield. And then it says this. The paramount combat lesson learned from every operation is the vital importance of leadership. Our equipment, our supply, and above all, our men are splendid. Aggressive and determined leadership is the priceless factor which inspires a command and upon which all success in battle depends. It it is responsible for success or failure. I don't know if I have that thing trademarked of leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know if I. But <laughs> I don't know if I could even get it trademarked. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Same exact thing. Same exact thing. This is a uh, signed by General Marshall, who's the chief of staff in the army during World War II. He was in World War I, first division. He was an infantry platoon commander in the Philippine-American War. And he's signing this thing. So let's jump into it. <clears throat> and, and you're gonna see that this is one of the most straightforward documents that, built, well, it's as straightforward as you can get because all it is basically is quotes from people on the front lines. That's all it is, just quotes. There's no, there's, there's, there's some little added commentary occasionally. Mm-hmm. Section one, infantry. Again and again, reports from the battlefields confirm the importance of leadership in every grade, whether it be corporal or colonel. Hmm. Other combat lessons are important. The exercise of leadership in battle is vital. Leadership has often been defined in theory. 
Here are some instances of its application or its absence on the battlefield. These are but a few examples. There are many others. Junior officer in battle, Captain T, Captain William T. Gordon, Infantry, Sicily. Since November 8th, I have had 17 officers in my company, and I am the only one who started out with it who is left to fight. In Tunisia, the, from troops pinned down in the dark, I have heard enlisted men call out such things as, where is an officer to lead us? We don't want to lie here. We want to attack. Where is an officer? In each case, an officer or officers have risen to the occasion, but this nevertheless shows beyond anything else the demand for battle leadership. You know, it's interesting, Dave, we had a, we just kind of went off yesterday during EF Online talking about the leadership vacuum, right? And knowing when to step up. And this is, these situations right here, you know, my immediate, my immediate thought is if I don't have enlisted, if I have enlisted people that are calling out, you know, hey, where's an officer? We want to attack. I'm, I'm not happy with my training. I'm not happy with my troops. I'm not happy with the job that I did. I, I'm not happy with my performance in preparing them for combat because if they need, if there's a leadership vacuum and no one's stepping up, they need to step up. Totally. We had a conversation, again, that was on EF Online yesterday, where you, just because you're in charge doesn't mean you need to talk. In fact, if you don't need to talk, then you shouldn't talk. If I walk into a room, if we're having a meeting at Echelon Front and Jamie, our operations director, is, you know, if she's, if she's putting out the word about what's gonna happen and I go in there and I see that she's got the timeline laid out and she's telling us where we need to be at what time and we're getting ready for the muster and she's got everything laid out, what do I need to say? I mean, I'm officially in charge. What do I need to say? Maybe, maybe. Looks good, thank you. <laughs> like, maybe. <laughs> so, you don't need to step up. And you know, I went into great detail on this in leadership strategy and tactics, talking about this, this leadership vacuum and how it appears sometimes and the real nitty gritty techniques that you pay attention to. One of the things that you pay attention to is, if there's a leadership vacuum and no one else knows it, they're not ready. For, they might not be ready to make an ad, to to follow. When no one knows there's when when they don't sense it, when they're just kind of sitting there, oh, we're doing okay, and you say, hey, we need to move. Your immediate response might be, why? Wait, wait, what are you talking about? They haven't sensed the leadership vacuum. They don't know that there's a problem. So sometimes you hesitate just a little bit longer. Let everyone feel that. Feel that lack of leadership. And then when you step in there with a command, boom, they're waiting for it. They're waiting for it. And that is an important thing. And that's an important, it's an important dichotomy. I'm sorry, I have to say it. it's an important dichotomy is that, yes, there will be many, many times when you as a leader don't have to say anything. And there will be many, many times where your team is absolutely waiting and begging to be told, hey, this is what we need to do now. <clears throat> Back to 
Back to the book. A company officer must build a legend about himself. He must take calculated risks. He must, on the other hand, do what he expects his men to do. He must always dig in, always take cover. His men must know that when he ducks, they must duck. On the other hand, they must not believe that when the officer ducks, they must run away. The officer must come through every barrage and bombing with a sheepish grin and a wry remark. Masterly understatement of hardship and danger endured plus a grin always pays dividends. <laughs> yeah, um, we got ambushed my, my first deployment to Iraq and I was in vehicle two and the tail end because we were driving fast at night and everything and they got, and I saw, I mean I saw us getting ambushed but we were going fast. It was on a, it was on a highway south of Baghdad and you know I'm looking and at this point we were, we were, we would face not forward, we would face out the sides. And so, you know, I see RPGs going over and exploding and tracer fire um, to and from. And, but then, you know, what we just, you know, the lead drivers like push through, push through, which was just kind of what we were gonna do, keep going. And then the, the shooting stops and we're still driving. And then my, my, my chief, who is in the, the rear vehicle, which is, purposely set up that way because that way if you have to reverse you've got you know your lead your your most senior leader enlisted leaders in the back he's going to take and, and also if something goes wrong he's going to assess so he's back there and you know he says he he's they got they got you know those rpgs were close a lot closer <laughs> to him than they were to me he comes up he's like hey sir <laughs> which you know first of all he rarely would call me sir you know but he's like hey sir you know we got ambushed back here? And I could hear in his voice, he's a little freaked out. And uh, I waited a solid, you know, like 10 seconds. And then I came up and said, Roger. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and, you know, they all, once we got down to where we were going, they're all like, oh, Roger, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I like this thing of, you know, hey, just a little grin, a wry remark. Hmm. We'll be good. It's kind of like when your kid falls down. Yes, you know, exactly like when your kid falls down. And then he looks at you, yeah. kind of like, what are we doing here? Are we crying? Are we whatever? And then, yeah, you know, no big deal kind of a thing. We're, we're laughing. Yep. Yeah. We're laughing. You know, I used to say like, oh, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. You, check out this. Check out your leg. It's going to bleed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My kid came home yesterday just blood everywhere he hit the reef <laughs> you were so proud <laughs> no it's just you know he's just covered in blood and I'm like mm. yeah the reef would get you yeah for sure the barnacles what it is out here in california well, the re the reefs are just rock it's not coral yeah. like you always hear about the coral reefs with the razors Oh, yeah. This is just rocks, but they have barnacles on them. Yeah, yeah. And if you go touch a barnacle, they're sharp. And yeah. if you fall and you scrape against them, you're getting cut open. You're going to be bleeding everywhere. But do not come into the house with the blood <laughs> is <laughs> the main blood moral outside. of the story. Yep. Get the hose. Get Take care of business. Next section. This is an interesting one. And this really shows you. This is one of those things where you think, you know, the world is different. This was a different time. This section says, hate your enemy. 
our men do not ordinarily hate they must hate they are better soldiers when they hate they must not fraternize with prisoners must not give them cigarettes and food the moment they are taken hate can be taught men by meticulous example the rangers are so taught that's a different world mm-hmm. like, I, I, that is not in any modern army publications and then you think about you know world war ii you think about what those guys were going into you think about what you had to get but the mindset you had to bring out in people when they were in a landing craft and they were going to go land on tarawa or iwo jima or normandy you gotta you gotta dig deep it's an interesting it's an interesting comment we are we are at total war just so everyone doesn't freak out this isn't taught anymore and i will say this it's not taught anymore right now but we better remember this because if the world we could get to a place where this is needed again i'm sorry to report i hope we don't i hope we can always be going into wars saying yep it's a small element of people and they've got some bad feelings and they've got some reasons for their their anger towards us but we need to go and show them that we're a benevolent group and we can help them move on those are all that's great hopefully we fight wars like that hopefully we don't have to fight any more wars where the doctrine is being adjusted to get us to hate our enemy Next one, leaders in front. Staff Sergeant Richard E. Deland, Infantry, Sicily. We want our captains out front. We don't much care about the position of our battalion commander. That's it. That's the whole, that's the whole note. Keep them moving. Operation Report, 7th Army Sicily. During an attack, officers and non-commissioned officers must never allow men to lie prone and, and passive under enemy fire. They must be required to move forward if this is at all possible. If movement is absolutely impossible, have the troops at least open fire. The act of firing induces self-confidence in attacking troops. The familiar expression, dig or die, has been greatly overworked. Attacking troops must not be allowed to dig in until they have secured their final objective. If they dig in when momentarily stopped by enemy fire, it will take dynamite to blast them from their holes and resume the advance. (laughs) This is another thing, and we're gonna get into some of this. There's another element, again, where you get to total war and and that's what that's what that's what that's what these things are leaning towards. We're in a totally different situation. You know, this is this is an existential war where if we don't win, America's not going to exist. Freedom will not exist in the world. NCO leadership, Staff Sergeant Robert J. Kemp, Platoon Sergeant, Infantry, Sicily. NCO leadership is important. Leaders, NCOs, and officers should be taken to an OP for terrain instruction and study before an attack. 
This has been possible in my outfit about one-fourth of the time. We have what is called an orders group, which consists of that group of officers and NCOs that must be assembled for instruction before any tactical move. Simple, clear, concise orders. Get people together, get face-to-face with them, look at the terrain, show them what they're seeing, show them where they're gonna move to. And this seems real obvious. And yet this guy is saying, hey, you better do it. Keep your mission in mind. Colonel E.B. Thayer, field artillery observer with 5th Army Italy. Difficulty was experienced in making patrol leaders realize the importance of bringing back information by a specified hour in time to be of value. Patrols often returned after encountering resistance without accomplishing their mission. Sending them back to accomplish their mission, despite their fatigue, seemed to be the most effective solution to the training problem involved, although the information required often arrived too late. And then this other guy says, this is Lieutenant Colonel T.F. Bogart, Infantry. And Actually, Dave, I know you haven't heard this yet. <clears throat> I went on kind of a massive tangent the other day uh, on the last podcast about seeing some of the SEAL machine gunners and and just how in tuned they were with their weapons and the great lengths that they would go to develop their own personal individual standard operating procedures so that they're working that thing like a painter works a brush. <laughs> and just, I, I said if, if I could take videos, and there's two guys in particular that that I was, I actually went through SEAL training with both of them and then I ended up in platoons with them at SEAL Team One back in the day. And if I had videos of them assaulting through targets with their M60 machine guns and the, the, the incredible smoothness with which they would handle the weapon and, and open up the feed tray and slap out extra links and pull out their new belt and slap feet, just, it would look beautiful. And I was like, eh, if, if we could have, if you could post those videos, no one would want to go to war with America if they know people like that are out there. <laughs> and it's not, and obviously it's not just SEAL machine gunners. It's like every, it's like there is a pocket of every, every sector of the military where there are people that is what they are doing. That's who they are. Yeah, there's, there's a version of that in everything for the people that, they kind of fall in love with what they're doing. Yeah. You know, when they just fall in love with whatever their job is, I, I was just kind of remarking as you go through these, they're said in a way that I can't think of anything else to say <laughs> other than, yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> That's really good. And so that the way he said it is, is, is right. And I'm kind of rocking my brain. I'm like, how can I create some context around this? Like, no, that's, that's it. That's pretty good. Um, so I, I think I'm just going to sit here for the next hour listening to you repeat what these guys have said. But I mean, the thing that's crazy about it is they seem so obvious. And it's like you said earlier is in some ways it's a little bit disheartening, disheartening at how often they need to be repeated because the way they're saying it isn't really that complex. Like, man, that's, that's as clear as anybody could say it. Do you think you take a statement? And this, this goes back to what we were talking about as far as, hey, I'm a leader. If I walk into a room and I sit through the brief and nothing needs to be said, I'm not gonna say anything. If someone takes a something like a, a fundamental principle of combat, cover and move, right? And they say, okay, but I'm gonna expand on that a little bit. 
and then they expand on it. And then someone else expands on that expansion, and then someone else expands on that expansion. And the next thing you know, you don't even, you, can't, you can't see cover and move anymore. Yeah. Become something else. For sure, the, the 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 complexity of those things. That's I think why these things are so powerful. I was even writing down little notes to myself of what was my version of what you were just yeah. saying. I wrote down like we we had the phrase mutual support. That's what we called it in airplanes. We had to apply mutual support to each other. It's cover and move. 100%. It's just cover and move. That's all it is. And technology has sort of redefined where we would need to be to apply that mutual support. But the principle hasn't changed. But if you're not careful and you get too wrapped up around this piece of technology allows me to get to this range, over time you lose the idea that all that really matters is that you and I work closely enough together that I can cover you and you can cover me and those roles will go back and forth in some sort of unknown, it's not predetermined, it's just gonna happen and and the better we are at it, the more naturally it happens. But all it is is mutual support. Yeah. And I remember sitting in briefs, I'm like, oh, hang on, are you just saying you want me to stay a certain distance away from you so I can help you with the, and when we interact with other aircraft? Hey, just say that. And if I, it's training too, because if I get it wrong, we could just come back and debrief it. It's okay. But you have spent like nine minutes talking about the nuances of that when there's no way to predict it. And I've lost sight of what you're really trying to tell me, which is don't get too far away, man. <laughs> Check. The, I, I, that just made me think. I was up with an air wing in Fallon. And I remember, I don't even, this is, this is definitely one of my early sort of graspings of the idea of cover and move was we would put a, a, a squad on the ground and when we would get extracted, when we put on the ground or we get extracted, I remember briefing the helicopter pilots and I don't know if I learned it from them or I don't know, but I remember saying, hey, and I actually have, I have a, I have a book that I wrote. I have a book that I wrote when I was at SEAL Team 1. I was a communicator. It's called Communications. And a lot of it, I I wrote it with a buddy of mine who is another communicator. And he wrote a lot of this technical stuff about how to operate each individual radio. And I just wrote my section. I mean, I helped him a little bit with that. Very little because he was smarter than me. And so he wrote, you know, how to do the little things and but I wrote all the stuff about, hey, when you're calling in a helicopter, here's what you need to do. And, and I'm going to find this because I have this book. I have it. And, and one of the things I said was leave one helicopter at altitude to provide cover fire for the helicopter that's on the ground. And here I was, a new guy, kind of thinking that I had a little something. You know, <laughs> I had a little something for these guys. And that's one of the initial kind of thoughts around or me starting to realize that cover and move wasn't just – that it, that it really was the fundamental of everything that we were doing. And and the other thing that I scratched down when, when I talk about people, and you're talking about people being really good at their jobs, I was doing some kind of an exercise up at Camp Pendleton, and somehow we got linked into a mortar, a, a Marine Corps mortar element. And, pff, bro, these guys were doing IADs, immediate action drills with their mortars, and... You know, I just remember watching them, and I don't know what, I don't know how you put words. <laughs> I don't know, how you, but you know, they were, you know, they're freaking 18 years old, and they hear, you know, contact right, and then boom, a guy's slapping down the base plate, the guy's putting sights on, boom, and they're getting rounds out, like, in so fast. Yeah. I don't know how fast it was, but so fast. 
accurate rounds and too, then yeah. immediately correcting yeah. bracketing and they're yeah. good and they're on target and you just think you know what we're good so america's awesome. good all right lieutenant colonel tf bogart <clears throat> greater emphasis must be placed on inculcating in junior officers and ncos the will to accomplish assigned missions despite opposition a few accounts of patrol actions illustrate this point. And he goes through these. A reconnaissance patrol consisting of a platoon was sent out about 1900 one evening to determine the strength of any, if any, of Germans in two small towns. The first about two miles away and the second about three miles farther on. The patrol reached the outskirts of the first town and met an Italian who told them there were no Germans in the town and then started to lead the patrol into town. A few hundred yards further, farther, a German machine gun opened up. The Italian disappeared. Three of the patrol were killed and the others dispersed. They drifted back to our battalion during the night and it was not until er nearly daylight that the practically valueless report of action was received. Not the slightest conception of the strength of the first town was obtained and no information of the second town. It was necessary to send out another patrol with the same mission. So that's, that's number one. And again, I think this is this is this just shows you that this is a different time. And they're like, "Hey, you took some casualties. You got three guys killed. You, you it doesn't matter. You got You still got to go figure out what the strength was in there. Obviously, you got some Germans in there. And by the way, there's another town two miles away. You need to go get on that too. That is not a consistent attitude with uh, current operations, right? Where you go, oh yeah, we took three casualties, but we're continuing down here on this reconnaissance mission. By the way." Freaking legit. Two, a patrol sent out with the mission of determining the condition of a road, especially bridges, over a three-mile stretch to the front. When this patrol had covered about a mile, it ran into a motorized German patrol. Two of the Americans were killed, and the platoon leader claimed six Germans. The patrol leader forgot his mission, returned to the battalion CP with the remainder of his patrol, and had to be sent out again with a great loss in time getting the information desired. This dude's out there, gets into contact with a motorized German patrol, has two guys killed, killed six Germans, comes back to base, he's probably totally amped and feeling like he did a great job, and they say, hey, did you complete your mission? No. Oh, roger that. Go back out. These are hard men. Last one, on several occasions, patrols were sent out on reconnaissance missions with instructions to get certain information by a specific time. The hour would pass and sometimes several others without a word from the patrol. Sometimes it was due to difficulties encountered, sometimes to mistakes in computation of time and space factors, but in all cases, there was no good reason why some information didn't get back by the specified time. And here's, I said there were some occasional comments Amplifying information, so here's the comment. Comment, the failure of patrols in these instances stems from a lack of appreciation on the part of NCOs and junior officers of their missions. In patrol actions, as in the operations of larger units, the mission must be kept uppermost in the minds of all ranks and no action should be undertaken which does not contribute directly to the accomplishment accomplishment of that mission. Conversely, no incidental or inadvertent contact with the enemy should deter or divert patrols from the complete accomplishment of their missions to include compliance with all instructions given where humanly possible. <laughs> These guys are freaking just legit. <clears throat> That's because this is total war. Yeah. That's because this is an existential war. There's... 
there's so much insulation that we, we sometimes try to create. And I remember feeling it on my deployment to Ramadi, which was very different than my deployments in an aircraft. And I even remember feeling the sense of wanting to insulate my own family from what I was doing, the feeling of just wanting to keep them insulated from the reality. When actually all that did, to, to be honest with for my wife, is made it, made it kind of worse because she had to create something in her mind and she had to try to piece it together, which she simply couldn't do. But that need to insulate it, if that ends up on the inside with your own folks, and, and it becomes most obvious when you start losing people and, and the question of, hey, how much time are we gonna take how much downtime are we gonna take? And I'm listening to this and, and it's like, that's not even a, there's not, we're not even, that conversation isn't even happening. We're not, we're not talking about, hey, what are we gonna do to acknowledge what has happened here? Which of course you wanna do, but we're, this is not an option. And the leadership isn't even contemplating that. It's funny the way he said that, my mind immediately went, like, I, I wanna write that differently. Instead of the staff NCOs and the junior officers not understanding it, it's, the leadership has failed to explain to them the context that they should understand, and we actually aren't doing our jobs. I might have gotten ahead of myself. It looks like you're laughing at something. But I'm laughing. Even when he said that, it was like, <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Yeah, I'm laughing because you can see my note right there says ownership question mark. <laughs> exact same thing Check. is you know when you, when you blame your NCOs and your junior officers because they don't appreciate their mission yeah. and they don't understand it. Well, guess what? Whose fault is that all day long? Totally. It's my fault as a leader for letting those junior officers go out there. And I'm not sitting over here trying to pick apart the things they're saying. I'm just picturing every time, every time I placed a demand on guys on my team that they understood, it wasn't even hard for them to step up. I mean, it was a challenging situation, but if they understand why we were just stepping up and making things happen when it was hard, no factor. My 18-year-old Marines were gone, no factor. But if I failed to give them that, and then something difficult happened that created some friction and some, some doubt, that was a much harder problem to get past if they didn't understand why they needed to get past it. And that was always, always on me, always. Yeah. I, or it was on the 18-year-old kid on his very first deployment that one of his closest friends had just gotten killed. It's either on him or it's on me. It's not even hard. Yeah. But if you gave them that context, what they could overcome and endure I don't mean to say that it wasn't hard. Maybe that's the wrong way to describe it. But boy, they did it every single time without hesitation. Yeah, and that's that's the whole U.S. military. Even though, you know, as, as I read this, I'm like, man, these guys were hard. But that's what we do in the military. You know, you take casualties, and then you you go you go do your job. That's what you do. Next one, team up, Captain William T. Gordon, Infantry Sicily. I have found that men in position must fight in pairs. An order that 50% stay awake is thus easily enforced. It bolsters morale and nerves. Rally point, in every company attack order, a reserve force must be prescribed. I always do, even though sometimes this force consists only of myself and my first sergeant. <laughs> Often a soldier um, who a moment before his runaway is converted to a fighter by leadership. A reserve force gives him a rallying point. That's brilliant. Just having a fallback point, even if it's two people. Hey, if you got to run away, run to here. And then who's there? The platoon commander and the first sergeant. Like, all right, buddy. Here, take some ammo. Get ready, because we're going to rock and roll. <laughs> Fear is normal. 
Colonel George Taylor, Infantry Sicily. Fear of being afraid is the greatest obstacle for the new man in battle to overcome. There is no reason for shame in being afraid. Men who have had excellent battle records freely admit they are scared stiff in battle. The important thing is that every soldier must be taught all he needs to know so well that battlefield thinking is reduced to a minimum. Automatic, disciplined reactions to battlefield problems must be the rule. In battle, the worst element is mental and nervous exhaustion. There is no real rest under fire. The ability to withstand fire is more important than all the knowledge in the world. What are you writing down? Nervous exhaustion. Yeah. The idea that you will exhaust yourself and render yourself incapable just by creating the fear in your mind. By when you don't react to what's going on, you just you and you. Just, I've seen it where people get overwhelmed by the moment and they end up doing nothing, and they literally exhaust themselves in in their own minds by being afraid of what's out there rather than just facing what's out there, which is extremely hard to do, but. Just the way he wrote that, that nervous exhaustion is such an awesome way to describe what sometimes people do when they're just freaking out of what's happening. They exhaust themselves into doing nothing. The I, I got mortared a couple times. And actually, my platoon of my first deployment, we, we went to this outstation. It was a special forces outstation. It was in a rough neighborhood in, in Baghdad. And we got mortared a decent amount that night. And... um like the next day, I, 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 let me rephrase that. We probably got hit with a, 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 an RPG or two, maybe a, a, a rifle-fired grenade, and then, I don't know, some number of mortars more than more than three or four. Like, so this is, this is decent, right? Yeah. Which, by the way, when you compare it to this, it's just nothing. <laughs> it's just nothing. And the reason I bring it up, because even that, one night, you know, one night of receiving some pretty consistent mortar fire was enough that you could see the next day, guys were on edge. Guys were legitimately on edge. After one night of light mortar attacks, and that's just crazy. And you could see that over time, and it's what we see in World War One. You know those awful videos of World War One of guys that had shell shock, legit shell shock. And when we when we covered shot at dawn on here, you know you break down, people break down, and it doesn't matter what you say, what you do. You're telling them you're going to shoot them if they if they desert, and they do it anyways. Yeah. So the ability to withstand fire is more important than all the knowledge in the world. I'll tell you something else. I think the ability to withstand fire is related to an acceptance of death. I mean, if you are if you are scared of dying, this is going to drive you insane. Yeah, I, I think that's the nervous exhaustion right there. You're going to go insane if that's what you think think about. Look, man, when I got when I got to Ramadi. I was afraid of dying for a very brief period of time, but I was I got there and I I, I remember I, I wrote about it and 
I remember realizing as I probably was there for you know a little bit, I had in some ways the benefit of knowing people that had been there, knowing, knowing, knowing what I was gonna get myself into, but when I got there, I'm like, oh man, I'm here now. And I remember thinking for a little while like, Oh, this maybe maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe this was a mistake, and there was a little bit of fear of dying. And the time that I spent thinking about that was it's part it was it was exhausting. And then I, you know what? You know what? That yes, that might happen. I I I literally considered to myself, yep, that might happen, and I got past it, and that was the end of it. I never lost the idea that it could happen. I fully understood that, but I sort of just stopped thinking about it. I didn't stop thinking about it because I didn't think it would happen. I just stopped thinking about it because it was a kind of a useless thing to think about anymore. But if you get trapped in that, and I remember a small period of time of that feeling of like the paranoia that starts to build up of what you can end up creating is that you're going to die. There's no way to get out of it. And that becomes the obsession that you think about. If you're gonna go to combat, you have to accept that that might happen. And then you have to get past that and then go do whatever it is you're gonna go do, knowing that's the case without letting it control you at all. But again, what I was going to face in my brush with war compared to any of this other stuff yeah. is kind of crazy. Yeah, there's another end of the spectrum too. And I think I kind of went back and forth between two mindsets of one is, you know what, I, I, I can die, That'll, that could happen tonight. And you know what, I'm not gonna die. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. You know, what? whatever, watch this. I'll stand out here in the street, doesn't matter, they can't kill me. I mean, in my f first deployment to Iraq, <laughs> uh, what did I write? On my Humvee door, once we got the, um, we, we welded steel steel on there. I think I, think I wrote, um, I cannot be killed on it. <laughs> and my guys made me take it off. They were so freaked out. They're like, oh, don't do that, man. That's a total jinx. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, and, and you know, even talking to Dean Ladd, Dean Ladd, you know, going into Tarawa. It's like, oh, did you think you were going to get killed? And he's like, no, of yeah. course not. What are you? Yeah. What do you think I'm, I'm weak? Yeah. And that might be the greatest story of all time when. His buddy went, he, he pretended like he was dying. His buddy pretended like he was dying and had his his friend, the, the chaplain, come over and was reading him his last rites, and, and, he, and then he starts laughing. All right. Next section is about Sicily, Italy, and Act 2, night attacks. And they, they get into Act 2, which is the... the Battle up on the Aleutian Island or the, the, the island of a two. 2,900 Japanese soldiers, 2,872 of them killed, 28 captured. Surprise saves lives. Major John R. Patterson, Infantry, Sicily. The mission of our battalion after landing at south south of Gala in Sicily was to capture the airport at Biscari. The battalion used the silent night attack. Three rifle companies were in line with heavy machine with heavy weapons company in reserve. To reach its line of departure, the battalion crossed two ridges using control two control lines, then climbed the cliff at the airport to the line of departure. All this was done silently under the cover of darkness. The attack was started with a hand grenade. We didn't fire until the Germans counterattacked. When we 
went with we went in with bayonets and hand grenades and caught some of the Germans undressing and dressing. The tanks fired their guns but wouldn't close on us. The enemy knew their men were all about, so they fired their machine guns and rifles mainly into the air. Our attack lasted about 30 minutes. We had no casualties during the attack. Two were killed during the counterattacks. So that, that, that silent option, I was do, we were doing training. I was at Team 2. I was an assistant platoon commander. They captured one of our SEALs. They had him up in, this is an urban combat training. They had him up in the third floor of this building. And they're telling him, you know, yell and scream. And so he's up there. They're going to kill me and all this. And they're waiting for us, and they're waiting for us to do what we do, which is, you know, enter on the first floor, clear the first floor, move to the second floor, clear the second floor, move to the third floor, move clear the third floor, get to the room where he is. And I'm like, you know, silence. We patrolled out. We took the, the fire escape up directly to the third floor, didn't clear any of the other rooms, and went right into where, because we could see where he was. We could hear where he was. So we knew he was in like one of one or two or three rooms. And we caught those those op four guys completely off guard. They're, they're, they're literally looking out the windows trying to see where we were. And we walked in and shot them all in the back, rescued our guy. <laughs> but the, what's important here is, and he goes into like a little bit of it, a little bit more detail, but you, because we're being quiet, you have to have good control lines of where you're gonna let people get to. Hand-to-hand fighting. <laughs> Captain Gerald, infantry. At Biscari Airport, I used my trench knife twice. One of my men got three with his bayonet. He shot one, then another tried to grab his bayonet. He got this one with his bayonet. That got him started, so he got three in before it was all over. small arms against armor. We found that the, the 30 caliber AP pierces enemy armored half tracks at close ranges. That's something that everybody should know. <laughs> Platoon action, Lieutenant Hollerich. Infantry, when the enemy machine guns opened up, we threw grenades. The machine guns pulled back out of grenade fire. Then NCOs and Browning automatic riflemen went up over the embankment through and beyond the initial enemy positions. Eventually, we had a base of fire, about 20 men, including the bars, the BARs. During the enemy counterattacks, we did pretty well with other fire, too. Lead was flying fast and furiously at 20 to 30 yards. We fire at flashes. In this kind of firing, you learn to fire and roll to one side or they will soon get you. I read that whole thing just to get that last little part. If you're a trooper out there, if you're in the military, you shoot and then you move. Because if you pop your head up again in that same spot, you're getting, you're gonna take one. Comment, in all these accounts of a successful night attack by a small unit, the application of the following principles is worthy of note. Close control during the approach by the use of control lines adjusted to difficult terrain features. Designation of a line of departure as close to the objective as possible and after all major terrain obstacles have been passed. This is essential to assure proper organization of the unit immediately prior to the so You can t- apply that right there to so many business things right there. 
Like you get everything ready to go. You get past all the main obstacles. Once everyone's past the main obstacles, then you execute. Attainment of the vital surprise. Use of the bayonet and hand grenades with no weapon firing permitted. It may often be advisable to prohibit the loading of rifles. And for anyone that doesn't understand why these guys are talking about using grenades so much, grenades do not give away your position. Neither do bayonets. So you can huck grenades and no one knows where it just came from. There's no one to shoot at. There's no muzzle flash. And so it's a great weapon when you are attacking from like a clandestine situation where you don't want the enemy to know where you are. Use of frontal attack only. Any attempt at envelopment tends to cause disorder and confusion. Note that one platoon which had advanced ahead of the general lines was pulled back to conform. So they're saying frontal attack only, and what they're saying is don't try and surround, because if you try and surround people at night, and you're gonna end up on opposite sides, and you're gonna end up in a blue-on-blue situation. I don't think that they mean don't set up flank situations. A definite and limited objective, capture of an airfield, in this case, in which the entire front could be covered by manpower rather than firepower. Oh, that's good. These are the major elements of successful night attack brought out in the foregoing account. Others not mentioned, but which were undoubtedly contributing contributing factors of the operation are careful planning in minute detail, precise, specific orders, careful arrangement for maintenance of direction, thorough daylight reconnaissance, by as many of the leaders as possible, use of compound, use of compact columns in the approach. So the reason that they're saying precise specific orders, that's different. That's different than what we normally talk about. The reason is because you are attempting to make this happen without having the enemy get a vote. So once the enemy gets a vote, if you're too specific, things change, now we don't know what to do. But we are setting this thing up to be very specific and we should be able to get to our last points of concealment. We should be in our positions. Everything should be good. Once that attack starts, you know, you still want to keep them constrained because it's nighttime. Uh, yeah, and the context of the night piece is also, I think, really important because it seems what he's what they're saying is that there's a lot more close control under a night attack. It requires a whole bunch of other things because when the chaos ensues under night attack, you are denied something that you usually rely on so heavily. Yeah. And it, when you were reading that, and, and again, it's under the context of a night assault. It's different. It's different at night. You told a story long time ago that I've used a bunch, and there's a version of it I have from flying, which was when we started using NVGs. The way we described the use of NVGs, why we would use NVGs in an airplane is the most simplest way to describe it is it allows us to use daytime tactics at night, which before you just couldn't do. You actually, you want the least amount of close control as possible. You need to have some, but in the day you don't need it as much because you can rely on being able to see each other. And when you started to see people like reject the idea of things that allowed you to maneuver in different ways using technology, because why would I do it like that? The night creates an environment that's really hard to operate in. And if you're gonna be successful at night, you have to do a lot more things than you would normally do during the day, which is why some of the technology pieces are so nice to allow you to do it. But even with that, you can't pretend like the two are the same. And, and the detail is going through, I'm all thinking like, yeah, you, you wouldn't do that during the day. You have to do that at night. Yeah, yeah, and, and now that we're talking about it, when you're talking about this size element, because I'm saying, hey, you could still set up flanks, but, 
If it's nighttime and you got a big element, I actually wouldn't. I would set up a, a complete online assault. We would totally. all be together. We would all be within you know communication distance, and we're gonna not make those mistakes. And we're gonna know where everyone is because when you're online, you've got free fire in any direct in 180 yeah. degrees ahead of you. It's an awesome thing. That's gonna that's gonna that's gonna overwhelm or or make the idea of having another element on the flank obsolete because you because your firepower is so unrestricted when you're online and that's you know it's like you can either assault online or you can set up an L that's it and then there's these little other variations where you can start to envelop but envelopment is very very dangerous and you better have some serious control measures in place if you're gonna try that very serious control measures including up to and including pieces of terrain that actually prevent you from having a blue on blue because there's a freaking mountain or a ravine or a whatever that prevents you from getting shot by your own guys. Hmm. All right, this this little section here starts to jump into really specific stuff, knocking out pillboxes, and then it gets into individual initiative. The following cases of individual initiative, initiative and heroism during the Salerno landing were reported by the infantry. Sergeant Manuel Gonzalez, upon landing, discovered the position of a German 88 in the sand dunes near the beach. This gun was firing on the assault boats as they landed. The sergeant crept around the position under machine gun fire, which set his pack on fire. And despite the hand grenades being thrown at him, he then calmly tossed several hand grenades into a gun emplacement, killing the crew and blowing up their ammunition. Yeah, you're going to see each one of these, these. These are talking about individual initiative. What they are is just, just pure heroics. Sergeant John Y. McGill jumped on an enemy tank and dropped a hand grenade into the open turret, killing the crew. Private Clayton I. Tallman on Hill 424 observed that the enemy was attempting an envelopment of the left flank of his company. Taking up a better position, he killed an enemy machine gun crew with three carefully aimed shots. In a few minutes, he repeated the same action when another enemy machine gun crew appeared. He alone protected the left flank of the company until the rest of the platoon arrived. Private Burrell B. Reich discovered that he and a group of five men had been cut off from his company. He immediately organized them into a defensive position on a small knoll. They repulsed three rushes by the enemy who were attempting to establish machine gun positions on the flank. Private Reich was completely in command of the situation, giving orders and shouting encouragement. Yeah, I was going off on that last podcast about having team members that are gonna step up and just make things happen. Staff Sergeant Quillen H. McMitchin was shot in the chest and shoulder and shoulder before his assault boat reached the shore. I say that again: shot in the chest and and shoulder before he reaches the shore. Have you ever had a sh- shoulder injury, Echo Charles? Uh, yes. Yeah, where, where you're like, ah, you know, I really can't do anything. Right. Right. Or you, or you hurt your, you know, you get somebody with that pulls their pec muscle or whatever. Yeah, well, what do they do for the next six months? They, they, they sit around and drink warm milk. 
What does McMitchin do? Well, when the boat reached the beach, the landing ramp stuck and would not drop. The sergeant, despite his wounds, kicked the ramp loose and then led his section ashore, continuing to to direct their operations until he received a fatal shot from enemy gunfire. Pre-assault, you get shot in the chest and shoulder. When you get shot in the shoulder, you're not using that arm, and then you get shot in the chest as well. Our men moved ahead in the face of the intense fire and cleared the beach as soon as possible. Lieutenant Carey, soon after reaching the shore, was fired upon by three Germans armed with machine pistols. He returned fire, but his car being jammed after killing one of of his adversaries. He then grasped his weapon as a club and advancing in the face of their fire, clubbed the second. Then he physically tackled, subdued, and disarmed the third German, taking him prisoner. The ability of the individual soldier to grasp the implications of the situation and take the necessary action should be fully exploited. The results of combat are the fruits of combined efforts of individuals. Every soldier should be indoctrinated with the idea that his individual action may be the decisive factor in the final result. Leadership strategy and tactic. Every guy in the platoon is the most important guy. <laughs> True statement. True Dude, statement. That, that comment is so... I mean, it is so powerful that, that, that they can that they understand that what they do individually can change the entire outcome of the entire operation. And what's crazy when I'm listening to these these stories of just like you described, just total acts of heroism. They called it initiative and heroism. What's crazy about that is for the ones that have ended up Medal of Honor awardees, the ones that end up telling their stories, they all say the exact same thing. And I'm paraphrasing, but they all say, I, I don't feel like a hero. I just doing my job. That's what they all say. They just have this simple way of describing, I, I wasn't doing it to be a hero. I needed to take out that machine gun nest. Tom Fife's like, I, I didn't think of it in like any heroic, I, I needed to blow up that tank. So I got out of the tank and took care of it. And they downplay it so much that when you're listening to it, you're kind of just in awe, like, bro, are you are you kidding me? You're a total hero, but they never see it like that. They're just like, I had to do this. My men needed me to do this, so I just did it. The last thing I was thinking about was the write-up that I was gonna get if I attacked this position. And they do things that just seem completely superhuman, and the, the way they're able to do that is they understand that what they do has huge impact on the people around them, which is crazy. You can teach that to a human being. Yeah, imagine if you had a company where every single person inside your company <laughs> thought that each individual action that they had would have an impact on the entire company as a whole. What if you could indoctrinate and inculcate that idea into your team? Imagine what that team would be like. <clears throat> action on Achu. Operations Report Regimental Combat Team. To fight the Japs in this In this country, our troops must stick to high ground and not only outflank, but out-altitude the enemy. The high ground. Continuous movement is necessary to keep the spark in an attack. 
If a machine gun covers one point, then a group not at that point must continue to advance. (laughs) When fire is shifted, the original group must move. Even if the platoon is entirely halted by the fire of enemy guns, then the commitment of additional troop results, whereas by proper coordination, some portion of the platoon can be kept moving and the force committed kept to a minimum. That's his number one thing, is cover and move. The tendency of lower commanders to commit reserves too early must be curbed. Security cannot be overemphasized. Any movement or group on the battlefield, even in rear areas, is subject to enemy action. In this connection, consideration must be given to the protection of medical installation. At present, these are left unprotected without even individual arms for their personnel. In the event of enemy penetration through our frontline positions, it is practically certain that these installations will be hit. Why are they given that lessons? Because that's exactly what happened on like a suicide attack from the Japanese. Aggressive patrolling, particularly to maintain active content contact, is of vital importance and can mean the difference between defeat and victory. However, mere numbers of patrols will not solve the problem. Special training in patrolling and organizing patrols must be initiated. Commanders must plan to have reasonably fresh men available for night contact. It is vital to organize patrol activity carefully to ensure that all lines are familiar with the routes returning of returning patrols so that the danger of mistaken identity in, in the darkness will be minimized. Yeah, they got the, the, the Japanese on their attack made it. They broke through and it was fighting in the rear. Lieutenant General Simon B. Buckner, Commanding General, Alaskan Department. It was apparent that the enemy was particularly vulnerable to attack by units of our infantry, which pushed forward vigorously while the enemy was held down by artillery fire. What do we call that? Recover and move. Those units which had learned to advance closely behind their own artillery supporting fire had the greatest success. The Japs do not like our coordinated artillery fire, nor do they like our attacks with the bayonet. When under fire from small arms, they stay down in their holes and are easily approached. When attacking small groups of foxholes, our troops were able to keep the Japs down by fire from rifles and the Browning automatic rifle, while some of our men approached and dropped hand grenades into their holes. This is our favorite mop-up method, cover and move. When about to be run out of a position, the Japs seemed to feel it necessary to counterattack. These attacks were not well coordinated and were welcomed by our troops who were able to shoot down the enemy in great numbers. These Jap counterattacks were part of a suicidal character and were pressed home regardless of losses until practically all the counterattacking troops were exterminated. The enemy may believe that in such terrain he can hold up the advance of an entire battalion with three men and a light machine gun. In fact, however, he is critically vulnerable to intelligent action by officers and men who understand the necessity for immediate maneuver against small parties of the enemy seeking to hold them up. The fact was that a small maneuvering that small maneuvering patrols easily disposed of machine gun positions on reverse slopes behind mountain spurs, whereas any tendency to lie down and call for artillery support would have resulted only in tremendous wastage of artillery fire and attempting to seek out targets which, in fact, were inaccessible to artillery fire. That's an important point. So you think, oh, we got a machine gun up there. 
we need to call for fire. And now you think about how hard it's gonna be for this artillery to hit this place that's bunkered in or they're on the reverse slope of a mountain or whatever. It's a real problem. And yet, these guys realized if they just aggressively maneuvered on that machine gun, they'd be able to take it out. The two action likewise indicated that standard Japanese infiltration tactics can be offset by a system of anti-termite patrols organized behind our lines, protecting artillery, command posts, and supply lines. Wherever troops know that these friendly patrols were behind them, fire in our rear will mean simply that our patrols are cleaning people up. Goes into the South Pacific, talking about the jungle. Jungle notes, aggressive action, flexible plans. Report of the 43rd Division, New Georgia. Aggressive action is necessary. Never relax the pressure. Never relax the pressure. That's a good, that's a good just thing to think about every time you wake up in the morning. (laughs) Never relax the pressure. Maneuver of small units at risk of temporary loss of communications is important. Plans and orders must be so flexible as to permit prompt maneuver change. This is another thing where I would feel like I was cheating when I was you know, going through training and stuff because we would make these really flexible plans. And, and of course, the training cadre is gonna do things to disrupt your plan. And when your plan gets disrupted and it's super flexible, you're like, oh, whatever, you know? Go with plan B, go with plan C, no factor. Never relax the pressure. It's actually pretty hard to disrupt a plan that's not very rigid, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yes. we didn't have like 37 steps that you can interrupt. We had a basic idea and some real good ideas of how we're gonna maneuver, and disrupting that is much harder. Dude, that, that, that last one was awesome. Which one? The, the one you, we talked about, never, never, never relax, relax the pressure. The pressure. Yeah. Like, but I think the title of that was um, Aggressive Action Flexible, flexible plans. plans. So whatever that title was, just that alone, obviously the description makes it even better, but that in and of itself, that will solve just that mindset yep. solves so many problems in yep. your world, anywhere in your world. There's a couple things that you need to be aware of. The way that you have flexible plans is you are religious about making sure everyone understands the commander's intent. That's if you can do that. Hey, this is what this is the overall thing that we're trying to accomplish. Here's the couple parameters you got to work within. Other than that, make it happen. Yeah, get aggressive making it happen. Because if you just make a flexible plan and you think, hey, you know, you guys come in from the west and you guys come in from the south, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with that plan. It's super flexible, but no one knows where they can go, where they can't go. There's no deconfliction set up, so you need to think about it. The other thing that's interesting about aggressive action flexible plans is the more you plan, the more detail you get, the worse your plan becomes. Now, if you come up with a plan in three minutes, you probably need a little bit more time, although I have executed operations where I, we planned for 15 minutes. My boss asked me that. My boss said, how much time do you guys need to launch it? This is my first deployment. My, my second deployment, no one asked me. They already knew the answer. <laughs> uh, my first deployment, how much time do you guys need? And I was like, 15 minutes. <laughs> That's how much time. What you're getting at, though, is the propensity of how do things usually work out? Do we usually plan too much or not enough? It's pretty rare that we don't plan enough. 
what typically happens is we overplan and overplan and overplan. And there's an old saying, and I don't know if it's just in aviation, is how long do you have to plan your mission? And the joke is 30 minutes. How long do you need to plan your mission? And the joke is 30 minutes more than you have. And the reason is is, is we have a propensity to overplan. Oh, you it, guys that, say that in aviation? Yeah. I thought I made that up. You did not make it up. <laughs> unless it was on your trip to Fallon and all of a sudden you're the reason we said it. Now, we've been saying that for years. And the point is kind of what you're getting at is, Oh, if you gave me nine hours to plan, guess how long I'm going to plan? Nine hours. <laughs> can you underplan? Yes, you absolutely can. You can plan for two minutes when you actually need to spend some more time. But the driver is is what you were saying is, hey, I only need 15 minutes. I need to cover the key points, the highlights. And if you've got a team that's well-trained, they might even recognize, hey, you know, listen, we got a little additional risk here because we didn't really have time to dissect this one. So when we get to this place in the mission, we need to be a little more aware that we're going to need to be a little more flexible. We have, we're, we're less aware than we like to be. But I know that as opposed to, hey, let's take three days to plan. And by the time we get to the objective, it's a total waste of time because that mission has come and gone. Most teams that we work with over plan. They overthink, they overcreate, and then when they go out to implement, they're either too late or they're so rigid in what they do, they can't maneuver around. So if you're looking for the balance there, less is typically more. Not always, not 100% of the time, but that's where your bias should be. Yeah. It's kind of like packing, right? For a trip. Mm. It's kind of the same mindset. Which is? Like overpacking. Oh. People will overpack because they think of all the different scenarios. They're going to need this jacket, those socks, this shoe. I need flip flops too for the. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you got a washer dryer there. You know, you don't need all that stuff. You got to be flexible. See what I'm saying? Check. Otherwise, you got all these suitcases, you know. <laughs> it's the same mindset, is what I'm saying, though. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if you underpack, but mm-hmm. you're flexible, it's way better. Yeah. Maneuver. You can maneuver, you know. Yeah, it is weird that it's such an advantage to come up with a nice flexible plan that everybody knows and it's so easy. Man, the, the, the planning, the planning, what would I call it? Like the, the evolution of planning inside the SEAL teams. You know, at, at one point it was beyond insanity. We wrote about it in, in Extreme Ownership. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way Seth and Leif were taught to plan was, was mayhem. It was, it was 150 slide PowerPoints. Yeah. That, you know, oh, and your font's wrong. The and font oh, was you more better important this, than the and oh, you that. And you need to go through this branch plan and this other thing over here. Man, when those guys started working with me, I, I remember when, when I, and I talked about this in Extreme Ownership, when I was telling those guys, hey, just make a plan that the lowest common denominator, get up, have people walk through it, look at the map, use the map, draw a picture. Draw it up on the whiteboard. Do that. I remember Seth was looking at me like he was going to get fired. <laughs> like when he gives this brief, he's going to get fired. And it's funny because usually I would get that. I would feel a little bit more pushback from Leif on stuff. And Seth would be like, yeah, Roger. And Leif would be like, why would we do it like that? And this time, for whatever reason, I think I think Leif actually just realized that this was the smartest thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> I think Leif just said to himself, you know what? This actually freaking makes sense. And he was so on board with it. He was so stoked. And he had and he had BTF Tony was his chief. And that's the way, you know, Tony knew how to make shit happen. And and I just but but Seth was just freaked out like, well, I mean, you think and he was so freaked out by the fact of thinking that he was gonna get fired for for trying to make his men understand what was going to happen on this mission. And the cool thing was, the commanding officer, when when they got done, 
because it was two platoons going out on on an SR, you know, on a reconnaissance mission, and, and they both took their platoons out. When they got done, the the you know the the commanding officer who had gone around and watched all the platoons give all their briefs and give all these 150 PowerPoint slides and do all these you know uh, what what is it called animation in your slides. He'd watched all those things, and he he said these are the, these are the best briefs I've seen, which was freaking awesome. Yeah. It was awesome because. If the commanding officer can't follow what the hell's gonna happen on an operation, how is a new guy, E4, machine gunner? He can't. Yeah. He's not following anything. And the more flexible you make these plans, when you're not all rigid. What's kind of crazy about that is that commanding officer was probably stoked that the brief took nine minutes, not 49 minutes. He was yeah. probably waiting like, yeah. here we go, Yeah, we're gonna come in, and, and he would probably look around like, that's it, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, is it still an hour long? Yeah. I, uh, but an hour long, of real information of as opposed to yeah. an, you know an hour and 47 minutes of slides that are of of you know uh, asset matrix for the you, you where know. he knew represented 30 man hours of powerpoint work to make yeah. the arrow move the the point behind that was and I saw this in the Pentagon all the time I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some of this in the EA world working in, in you know with admirals and generals mm-hmm. is we create this thing where we are Hey, this is how the boss wants it. Oh, yeah. And so we give the boss what he wants and some of the bosses are pretty, they don't want to go down there and micromanage their people so they kind of tolerate it. And we convince ourselves, this is what the boss is looking for so I'm going to do what make, most of our bosses don't actually want this. They just want to make sure they know that you know what you're going to go do to go get it done. And the least amount of time it, it takes to make him comfortable that you know the plan is actually what he wants. Mm-hmm. And I remember putting these briefs together and I'd get these templates to go brief these generals up in the top floor of the Pentagon. It was this big thing, you've got 19 minutes, it's a fitness calendar. And we'd go in there and for the first couple of briefs we'd have 47 pages and he'd go, hey, can you just skip to the summary slide? Click, 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 click. Summary, he's like, okay, okay, hey, that may, Hey, bullet through, what do you mean by that? Hey, sir, we're talking about this. Okay, cool, awesome. Hey, I hate to do it to you guys, I gotta get going, thanks. But I'm good at your plan, go execute. They didn't want any of that garbage. But we followed this template, we were so sure that they wanted, most leaders really just want to know that you understand. Yeah, and they wanna understand the wave tops of what's happening so they understand. I I had this guy, I was putting a group through land warfare, and this guy gave a brief and it was horrible and long and freaking too detailed and covered stuff that didn't matter to anyone in the room and and then he gave another brief that was you know not enough and you know skipped like basic contingencies and and then he was kind of frustrated and he goes well you know what what what, can you even tell me what a good brief is as if that was like a trick question (laughs) and i was i thought about it for four seconds and I said, a good brief is a brief where your men understand what is going to happen and what to do during an operation. That's a good brief. And he was able to dial it in. Yeah. <clears throat> this we're, we're in the jungle. You might have forgot that. Patrolling in the jungle, an officer with considerable experience in the jungle patrolling gives this advice. Patrols are most likely to give away their presence in an area by their footprints. Shine from the smallest metal surface such as a belt buckle or watch must be avoided. A luminous watch constitutes a real danger. Any noise such as talking, coughing, spitting, etc., must has to be treated with the, the greatest of all dangers. A man on patrol must learn to move silently, making every possible use of natural cover. 
That's just old school stuff. I got to feel some of that when I was hunting. I was like so happy to be moving quietly. Some more patrol tips. Position and camouflage are more important than I learned in the States. In training, in training, bear down on cover and concealment. Bear down on avoidance of the blundering approach. On patrols, on fire and maneuver, which are equally important. And I, I didn't read that well. In training, bear down on cover and concealment. Bear down on the avoidance of blundering approach. On patrols, on fire and maneuver, which are equally important. Size of patrols. <sighs> Lieutenant Colonel W.A. Walker, tank destroyer battalion commander, Tunisia. Which, you know, let's just face it, if you're getting a title, tank destroying <laughs> battalion commander is right up there. Many men were lost in Tunisia by using squad patrols. The Germans used stronger patrols and just gobbled them up. A patrol should be either a sneak patrol small enough to escape detection or a combat patrol large enough to fight its way out of difficulty. Never allow one man to go out alone. You know what's interesting about that? We don't want to be balanced. Right? Well, he's talking about want to be balanced, but what he's saying is like you either want to be small and maneuverable and quiet or big enough to fight. Don't 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 try and make the mistake of trying to do both. Hey, we'll just take out a squad plus. Then you're making a bunch of noise. The difference between you know six guys and 12 guys is a massive difference. It is a massive difference on a patrol. It's a totally, like when we'd go out of the squad patrol in, in the SEAL teams, you know you got eight guys. It's this tiny little thing, and you can see everyone in, in the, at night with no night vision. You can see everyone, everyone's there, it's quiet. You, when you take out a platoon patrol, it seems like you've got this just massive thing. And when you take out a task unit patrol, it's just freaking gigantic. Like they're gonna hear you. Don't make that mistake. So this is one of those things that's like, it's not a dichotomy either or one of those rare things. Yeah, because normally we're saying, hey, you know, don't go to the extreme one side or the other. Right. You want to be balanced. Yeah, this is so kind of So you might like a... fall into the trap of, well, I want them to be small enough to be light and nimble, but big enough where, you know, they can defend themselves. And what you're going to end up with is not small and light and not able to defend themselves. Right. Like not, not big enough to fight, yet not small enough to move. Yes. It's kind of like uh, when you surf, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you judge waves, right? Mm-hmm. You're either too far for it to crash on you or you just go 100% under the wave. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, it crashes on you. You either go over it or go under it? Under it or it crashes way before it can hit you. Oh, that's that's a positive thing. Yes. You don't want it to crash on you. On you. Yes, you are You don't correct. want to be in that, one, that little middle ground. You don't want to be... In the in the, the zone of destruction. Yeah, the red zone. There's a movie called The North Shore. The impact zone. Impact zone. Yeah. yeah. So the North Shore, he covered that. Yeah. He was like, yeah, you're like, you don't want to be actually this guy Turtle. The name. Of, you ever watch North Shore, Dipper? No. Yeah. Rick Kane. Anyway, guy from Arizona wins a tank surfing competition. Mm-hmm. So he's like, of course I'm going to the North Shore. So he was, he was kind of a tank destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> in a matter of speaking, yes. Nonetheless. Tank waves are pretty small and tame. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the artificial waves in Arizona, Got apparently. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the North Shore and, you know, he kind of gets wrecked for a little bit. Anyway, he meets this guy, Turtle, and Turtle says, 
if the wave is here, don't be here because mm. you're going to get drilled. Classic line, man. So same deal in this. Maybe we should cover that movie on here just to get these, make sure we pass on these lessons learned. I'm just saying these <laughs> concepts are everywhere. That's, that's the thing. Next section is called Infantry Weapons. It goes through detail, M1 rifle, frag grenades, the Thompson submachine gun, the Browning automatic rifle, the light machine gun, heavy machine gun, 60 millimeter mortar, 81 millimeter mortar, the 37 millimeter AT gun, the 4.2 inch chemical mortar, which was originally called that because it was originally made for firing chemical shells, but eventually they adjusted it, put HE in there, but they still called it the... Uh, so he goes through like really good kind of pragmatic details of on, uh, on how to operate those weapons. Talks about next sections about artillery. Wait, what's chemical mortar? Chemical mortars were going to fire. Well, what they disguised it was was this is a smoke mortar. Yeah. So we're going to shoot if we have to use smoke to you know cover movement or we want to disrupt the enemy's ability to see. We have a mortar for firing smoke. Mm-hmm. But that was really so we could fire chemical weapons if we were going to use them. Like what? Like tear nerve gas or yeah, something like this? Yeah. Like, oh, damn. Yeah, like you're going to die. But we didn't do that. We ended up making an HE round, high explosive, just kind of a normal mortar round for it. Yeah. And they liked it. Gotcha. Uh, a section called Mast Fires, Lieutenant Colonel James Infantry Sicily. Our division artillery was never out of support for more than five minutes throughout the whole campaign. We've got a wonderful set of battalions in our division artillery, and we have worked so closely together that they're as much part of our outfit as our own battalions. They kept they keep right up on our heels all the time, and that is just what we've got to have. I don't know what we could have done without them. They leapfrogged their batteries continually and went into some of the damnedest positions I had ever seen and delivered the goods. We just can't praise them too much. They were always right there when you needed them. In one place where we couldn't get forward because the Heinies were on superior ground and had us pinned down with rifle, machine gun, and mortar fire, the division artillery massed nine batteries on them and plastered them with 1,500 rounds in less than 30 minutes. We then walked through that position without a scratch and the German dead were all over the place. Teamwork. Infantry tank team, Captain Putman. Putnam, infantry, Sicily. The infantry should be given practical training in cooperation with tanks. I don't mean the armored infantry. They're part of the armored division and work with them all the time. I mean ordinary infantry like us. I know our regiment didn't have any training with tanks in preparation for combat. We just didn't know how to work with the attached tank unit. When the ger- when the tanks came up to support us after we had broken up the German attack, we did not follow up the tanks properly as they went forward. Had we done so, we could have cleaned out most of the battalion of Germans. We had not been trained to work with the tanks, and when we remained in position, they went, and we remained in position after they went forward. If we would have known how to go forward with them, we could have done a much better job and could have gotten all the German vehicles and materiel. After this experience, we strongly recommend that all infantry be given practical training and cooperation with tanks in action. Get the infantrymen used to the tanks and how to fight together with them. That, that For me, that's a, a comment about training in general. You know, you can't expect people to do things that they've never trained to do. So don't expect them to do things that they haven't trained to do. If there's something that they need to know how to do or that they might have to do, train them on it. 
infantry tank attack. Lieutenant Colonel Perkins, tank battalion commander, Italy. The rush to battle is the wrong idea. Here, we creep up. Each tank should overwatch another tank. Each section should overwatch another section. Each platoon should overwatch another platoon. (laughs) Ranger training. Buddy system. Lieutenant Colonel William O. Darby. Commanding officer of the Rangers in Italy. And I think everybody... Kind of knows what I say when I say Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel William O. Darby. I know they at least think of the Darby Queen, the the Ranger obstacle course. In our work, we always use the buddy system. The men work in pairs. They live in pairs, eat in pairs, do guard in pairs, even do KP in pairs. Confidence in each other is developed. They can pick their own buddy from within their platoon. Same thing in the SEAL teams. Day one, you get a swim buddy and you stick with them. Realism, in our training, we never do anything without battle noises and effects. We always use live ammunition. We use mines, barbed wire, and protective bands of machine gun fire extensively. If the problem is to capture a machine gun nest, there's always a machine gun nest there with a machine gun firing in a fixed direction. The men very quickly get accustomed to having live ammunition flying around them. Captured Italian and German machine guns and machine pistols are used by the enemy in our problems. That He's talking about the Op 4. Our men quickly learn to distinguish between the fire of our own weapons and that of enemy weapons. Also, the enemy makes constant use of flares. We always carry our normal load of ammunition with weapons loaded. If a man knows his weapon is loaded, he will be more careful in handling it. An accidental discharge of a weapon automatically means a fine and immediate reduction to the grade of private. In our work, we must take drastic measures to guard against accidental discharges of weapons. We learned our lesson in Tunisia where the accidental discharge of a rifle queered a raid and caused a 24-hour delay in operations. So all kinds of good stuff in there. And, 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 I, and I will say this. So when I got the SEAL teams, it was almost all live fire. We, we did live fire for everything. And it gave you that kind of pressure and that kind of you, you got accustomed to machine guns and hearing them and you know rounds snapping overhead and you, you just got used to it. In fact, there were days where, where they would put us down range and just shoot, you know, put, put, put you down range, you'd go behind a berm or whatever, you get in a safe spot and then they just shoot at you. <laughs> so you'd start getting used to like, okay, this is what different rounds sound like and you, you know, you, that happens even being in the butts at a, you know, on a normal range. But that kind of realism is important. Here's the drawback. The drawback is the enemy doesn't maneuver. The enemy doesn't shoot back at you. So when we started using simunition, paintball, laser tag systems, that totally improved our tactical capability to to an incredible amount. The accidental discharge, that's still a huge deal, right? Oh, yeah. What is it now like that? I mean, they're, they're talking about finding people and busting them down to private. Uh... I mean, it, I, I think some of it depends on the circumstances. You know, if you have an accidental discharge in the SEAL teams, it's going to be your careers. Your careers on the line. You know, if you if you have something like that happen, it's not necessarily going to be over. Yeah. But you're going to have a real. You know, you're you're going to have to keep your hopes up that yeah. you don't that you don't get. So even like um like a. They call it AD, right? Or yeah, UAD? Yeah. AD, so, ND, which is a negligent discharge. Are those AD two is, different things? I think they are now. I'm not. I'm not like totally caught up on the on the um, t- 
terminology of where it's at right now. Yeah. The ND just started coming around when I was sort of in my later years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like negligent, that's like careless, you know? Yeah, like so careless. like an accidental discharge, which to your point, you can have a you can have a round just cook off. Like you're out in the desert mm. in Imperial Valley in California, it's 120 degrees out, and you dump six mags on your last run, uh-huh. and you're standing there, your weapon is scorching hot, and if there's a round in the chamber, it can cook off. It can just shoot. That's why you have your weapon painted, uh, pointed in a safe direction at all times. Yeah. If that happened, you, you're you not gonna get, I mean, you know, you're not really gonna get in trouble. I mean, if everyone didn't have their weapon clear and safe, but when it's hot out, everyone would be like, hey, clear and safe your weapons. But you know, we also used to have a command safe and let them hang, which is just, you just safe your weapon and you just let it hang there. So if you've got a hot round in there, it can cook off. Yeah. You're probably not, you know, you're not gonna get in trouble for that most likely. You Occasionally a weapon will have some kind of a malfunction mm-hmm. that will cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, what else could happen? I feel so, like something like that, like a weapons malfunction, the, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's like an, that's an accidental, accidental discharge, yeah. negligent is the kind of like, negligent oh, is I had you know. my finger in the trigger yeah, and yeah. you know, somebody called a ceasefire and all of a sudden, you know, I kind of let my weapon hang when it's resting on my finger and I crack off around. Right. You're going to get in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. This is more on ranger training. Physical conditioning. One of our best means of physical conditioning is speed marching. Finally reaching a point where we march 10 miles at a rate of six miles an hour to keep in condition, we use calisthenics and a daily five mile speed march. Discipline. Disciplinary drills are all important. We have a retreat formation daily, conditions permitting. At this formation, the men are inspected and some manual of arms performed followed by retreat. Every Sunday morning, there is a review followed by inspection in the ranks and then inspection of the camp or quarters. We have at least four periods a week of closed order drill and manual of arms and one period every week devoted to military courtesy. Infractions of discipline, military courtesy, and uniform regulations are dealt with quickly and severely. The officers must bear down on these things. The army in general has not stressed strict discipline enough. Without it, you are lost. Yeah, one of those things. Um, Can you go too far with discipline? Dave Burke. Yes, you can. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I obviously don't know the background of that story, but you know, the version of the story that he's talking about is the guys that could field strip their weapon in the dark at night on the worst possible situations. We had nine seconds to get that weapon back in action. You need discipline and repeat and wrote and over. You need that. And then the flip side is exactly what you just started this whole conversation with. If I just, if I, if you do it because you're scared of me and I tell you to do it because if you don't, you're going to get punished sooner or later, sooner or later, that approach will fail. Mm -hmm. And look, I know where the context of this book is, so it's driven by that first scenario, but you absolutely can overdo it. Yeah. And then you could be like John Bazalone. (laughs) Bazzy. And you'd hear hear stories from guys that worked with him. And they absolutely loved doing the right thing, drilling with those weapons. He set the example. He did it in front of them at night, blindfold. All those things. He did all those things. He did, and he, 
Like they love doing it. He was inspirational. He didn't impose discipline on them. He showed them and gave them the gift of self-discipline, which is far superior. Dude. And think of the mileage you get is if as a leader, the discipline that you demand from your people and the punishment that might come from not doing it, if you actually impose it upon yourself as well and hold yourself to the same standard, as opposed to get out there and go do that and I'm gonna sit in here and I don't know, watch TV or something. <laughs> uh, that piece of it, when you're talking about that discipline, what you get when you hold yourself to the exact same standard as your people. Bazzy. Section two field artillery. Morale effect, the incessant firing of our artillery during the six week period produced contrasting effects on the nerves of our own troops and on those of the enemy. Our infantry often stated that having those rounds continually landing in front of them was one of the best morale builders, especially at night. In the Jap, on the other hand, it produced severe cases of war neurosis. He couldn't sleep at night because he never knew when or where the next round was going to land. He couldn't sleep in the daytime because when our infantry wasn't attacking him, our artillery was giving him hell. And this is nice. The following statements made by prisoners are interesting. So these are Japanese prisoners, of which we know there wasn't a lot. Between the airport, between Bibelow Hill and the airport, we had many guns of all sizes before this campaign, but now many of them are gone, knocked out by artillery. It has completely demoralized many units, reduced many units in strength, and has made many men go crazy. We were awakened at night by the slightest noise because of the bad state of nerves. At night, three men stayed in one foxhole, two smoked while one slept. During the day, we also tried to get some sleep by alternating, but the continual artillery fire kept us on edge and we got no rest. Even in the two-story dugouts, many men were killed just by concussion. A direct hit would kill all the men inside. The artillery is the one thing that is universally feared by all our ground troops. It continues over such long periods of time, and the rounds come so fast. Except for the artillery, we could continue our defense. That's horror. That's just horror. Section three, miscellaneous. Booby traps. Seventh Army report Sicily. A German Luger pistol was booby trapped on a table. A new replacement picked it up. Two were killed and 14 were wounded in the resulting explosion. There's another little site. I'm gonna, I wasn't going to read this, but I'm going to read it. A Luger pistol was found lying on the ground. An American infantry lieutenant carefully tied a long cord to it and then, getting into a hole, pulled it to him and put it in his pocket. Later in the day, while examining the pistol, he attempted to remove the magazine. The explosion killed the lieutenant and two other men with six soldiers wounded. The reason I'm reading that is because that was a freaking, they set that thing up. Uh, that's, a, that's a massive explosion from a small piece of, from a small pistol. Timeliness of orders, Major Kinney, infantry. Our chief difficulty throughout the campaign was the lack of time given for the execution of orders. Frequently, we received operations orders which did not allow enough time for proper preparation and execution. 
at San Fratello, we received an order after 11 p.m. to attack at 6 a.m. the next morning. Now, when I read that, I was like, hey, man, I was kind of thinking, you know, I was like, I'll come up with a simple, flexible plan. No factor. I got this. What are they whining about? Read on. The six battalions were assembly <laughs> were in assembly areas f- some five or six miles from the line of departure. So even to get to where they were supposed to leave from, they had to go six miles. The terrain over which they had to move to get in position in the dark was the roughest, most rugged mountain country you could imagine, and all ammunition, weapons, and supplies had to be taken by hand and by mule pack. Although it might seem that 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. was sufficient time, the actual conditions were such that it was less than half than enough because the terrain, darkness, and transport difficulties. Also, the men had just completed marches over mountain trails of 9 to 14 miles and were not fresh for the new movement. (laughs) Maps, 7th Army. Report Sicily instill in all personnel an appreciation of the value of maps. The supply of maps will never be adequate to the demand. Training in the care and preservation of maps is as important as training in the care and preservation of materiel. Most important thing you need to know, most important piece of information is where you are. And if your map is destroyed, have you ever seen those old school silk maps? Yeah. Those things are legit. Yeah. They print them on silk, Echo Charles, Mm -hmm. and then they could survive. I understand. (laughs) Ah, I like this section. This section is called Room for Improvement. The following comments indicating weaknesses which must be corrected were made by the commanding general, and they don't give the division. I guess they're keeping it secret. Here we go. Sometimes units failed to dispose themselves properly for all-around defense when halted on an objective or when placed in position for defense. So when you're going to defense, they're not putting themselves in the right positions. Next, in the attack, riflemen frequently failed to provide fire that would cover the movement of adjacent units merely because they were not able to pinpoint definitely the location of the enemy rifle and machine gun elements firing on our troops. What does that mean? That means you fire where you suspect the enemy will be. And that's something that infantrymen and special operations people learn is if you don't know where the enemy is and you're in a gunfight, shoot where you think they might be. This is perhaps one of my favorite things from this book. Some small unit commanders selected positions apparently with cover and concealment for themselves as the primary objective rather than positions from which effective fire could be brought to bear on the enemy. And the last one, due to the enormous division frontage in the second phase of the landing at Salerno, some company, some, comp- some commanders attempted to stretch their units excessively and as a result permitted faulty dispositions. Prioritize and execute. They go into some details on the Japanese overall. And you know, I've been, I've been reading the book and saying Japs. Um, I know that's a derogatory term towards Japanese people. I'm not referring to Japanese people. I'm referring to the Imperial Japanese Army members that were fighting against America and were being referred to by their sworn enemy, the Americans, as Japs. 
Superman myth exploded. That's the title of this. Operations Report, 43rd Division, New Georgia. Our troops here came to regard the Superman stories about the Japanese as ridiculous. The Jap is tricky, but not so tricky as many have led been led to believe. He is not he is not nearly so ingenious or adaptable as the average American, and the truth of the matter is he's afraid of us, of our artillery, and of our sea and air power. Our troops must learn this and never forget it. Yeah. This is the last, I think this is the last, the last note. And this it gives some stuff about the Japanese as an enemy, and then it gives some stuff about the Germans as an enemy. And this is the last one here, last one from this book, from part one of Combat Lessons. Minor Tactics, Staff Sergeants Richard E. Deland and Robert J. Kemp, Infantry, Sicily. Never let an apparently lone machine gun suck you into a trap. The Germans will usually not fire on the individual, but will wait, watch where he goes, and get a whole flock. And that's that's the last point in here. And I think it's a it's not the last point in this whole book. There's a few more, but I think it's a good place to stop. And the reason why I think it's a good place to stop is because it's a warning. It's a warning about a trap. It's a warning about a trap that the Germans use, which is, you know, put a lone looking machine gun out there by itself. Oh, that looks exposed. And it seems real obvious when you read it. You're like, hey, if I see a, that looks too good to be true, right? This is too good to be true. This is the situation. And so it's real obvious to anyone that's looking at it, going, oh, that's too good to be true. There's a, a ripe machine gun that's waiting to be taken out. Looks real obvious, an obvious trap. And yet the warning is there. Why is the warning still there? Because people still fall for it. You will still fall for it. I will still fall for it. We will all still fall for that trap just like we will fall for the trap that we're good to go that we know everything that we need to know, that we understand everything that we need to understand, that we have reached our highest possible form. And all those little thoughts are a trap. Because we're not good. And we don't know everything, we don't understand everything, and we have absolutely not reached our highest form. We all have work to do, so watch out for that trap, because it is enticing. It is enticing like a lone machine gun just kind of sitting out there by itself, waiting to be taken out. And it's real easy to tell yourself that you're good. So here's a little warning for all of us, especially me. We can't fall for that trap. Hmm. Well, that wraps up that. Any other notes, Dave? 
No. We addressed all of it that I wrote down and a whole lot more. <laughs> you know, there, these lessons, all those statements, the comments, the, the explanations, they all come from the same place as that trap. They're all lessons learned the hard way. And as repetitive as they sort of sound, they're all because all of those are the same thing. I'm going to say this over and over and over again because this keeps happening over and over and over again. And it's in some ways it's it's heartbreaking, but that is the reality is that even those lessons of the things we're supposed to do come from we had a saying in aviation they come they were written in blood. They all came from a lesson that's already been we already know that, but we learned it the hard way. And you 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 repeat yourself all the time. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You repeat yourself. We do it echelon front. We repeat ourselves all the time. We take the same thing and then try to apply the context to whatever world, whatever company, whatever business, whatever problem we're dealing with. But we're always saying the same thing because these lessons, these lessons get learned over and over and over again. And the biggest, the biggest thing that prevents us from making that lesson stick is what you just said, is ourselves going, oh, no, I got it. I've heard it enough. I understand it. And the minute you are convinced that you've heard it enough and you've got it is when you're going to learn the exact same lesson again. Yeah, it's weird how, I mean, this happens to us all the time at Echelon Front. It, it, you, you go, we go into a company. The company's in the game. They're in the game. They're, they're telling me. I mean, there's definitely people. Uh, it happens on EF Online. Somebody would bring something up and someone would be like, oh, Jocko Podcast number 128. Yeah, he talks about that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but someone's answering that question in a millisecond, right? People that know the material. So we go into companies where they know, they've read, they know, they wrote, memorized. I guess know is a strong word, right? Uh, but, and I talked about this on, uh, Daryl Cooper and I got a, got into it a little bit on the Unraveling podcast because he was saying to me, well, how do you handle something when you know that the other person's premise is wrong? And, you know, he was pretty dug in. And I said, well, do you actually really know that? Because I'm not going to approach anything. If Dave Burke comes to me and says, hey, Jocko, a UFO just touched down in my backyard. I need support here, ASAP. Right? Not the split hairs, but you mean extraterrestrial. What did I say? UFO. Okay, yeah. The UFO is just unidentified. That's okay, all. so he identified. So he calls me up and says, a, a unidentified extraterrestrial machine just landed in my backyard. Do What do I say? Look, I know that's not true. Or do I? <laughs> right? You know what I say? I say, well, what does it look like? What 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 sort of what sort of weaponry do you see? Do are they is there a covering element? Can you extract from the AO until we can assemble a counter force to go after these guys, right? I don't just say, "Hey Dave, shut up." Yeah, you know what? I hate bringing that I'm I'm like that's a dumb example, right? But it's really hard for me to think of something that I should say it's really hard. It's not, man. Yeah. People think that they know stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. And what I say on EF Online the other day, I said, don't mistake your opinion for the don't truth. For the truth. Mm -hmm. 
Don't mistake your opinion for the truth. Don't mistake people's, don't mistake what you've heard and what you've said for the truth. Don't mistake the way you've always done things for the truth. Don't mistake your perspective for the truth. And that is why when you speak the truth, and you and I talked about this the other day, Dave, when you speak the truth, what you should do is speak the truth humbly. From a place of humility. Speak the truth from a place of humility. That's how you speak the truth. Because even when you believe something and you quote, know it's right, there is a chance, and you need to open your mind to this chance that you are actually wrong. And you didn't understand something. You didn't understand a different perspective. And all those things, all those things of you know, thinking that you know, thinking that you don't make this mistake, all those things, thinking that, you're, that your opinion is the truth, all those things, those are all traps. Those are all just traps. And they seem so obvious when we're sitting here talking about them. And yet, day after day after day, you, you, you see people fall into those traps. And so what's interesting is when we talk about these lessons and where I was starting this little idea is that you and I work with companies all the time and they know the material. <laughs> they can recite the material. And yet, they're caught up, they're not detached, and they're not executing correctly. And so one of the primary things, and it's great being an echelon front, because when we come in, we are instantly, we're de- we are detached. That's, that's our function. So as soon as we just take them and, and we move them over to our position, three feet, and say, look at that meeting, look at how that meeting just went. Or, you know, look at this, look at this, this, this task, the way you put this out to the troops. Look at this, just look at it. Does that sound like you're micromanaging? Does that sound like you're not giving any ownership? Like, what does it sound like if you read this and all of a sudden people go, <sighs> so you've gotta watch out for these traps in the world. I'm gonna say something that is a total contradiction because all the things that you, all, all these quotes, all these lessons, all the things you were just reading about in that, in this book or whatever this is, this, this compilation of people's lessons that they've learned. I was thinking about how often these things get repeated. And it's this idea of, hey, the minute you think you know these lessons, the minute you think you, I know this, is when you actually are, have the most amount of risk. And at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, I wish I knew all this stuff at the very beginning of my career and to think about what I actually could have done with my time in the Marine Corps if I knew this stuff. And like just the ultimate dichotomy of you never know this stuff. You have to learn it over and over and over again. And if I just knew this stuff, how much better I would have been at what I was doing. The the broad understanding of it is is what people is what makes it hard for people to understand at a level where it can be utilized. Because I know for a fact that you were taught, you know, hey, okay, when you're going through the basic school, it's like, okay, you got this element over here. They're gonna put down. You you were absolutely taught that. I was absolutely taught that, and yet I ended up having to teach this stuff to SEALs, guys that had been in for 15 years, 20 years, be, be like, hey, why aren't you putting some machine guns out on the flanks while you cross this road? Oh, that's like an old school thing. No, it's actually cover and move. This is like a basic thing that we do all the time. 
you know, and I'm not saying every SEAL, but I'm just saying SEALs that had been in the in the Navy for a long time. And that that's what's so difficult about these things. And I was thinking about this the other day. You start, okay, when you, when you do jiu-jitsu, you're at a jiu-jitsu academy. And you, the more people that are at the academy and the better they get, it's like a pyramid. If you're at the top of the pyramid, so Dean Lister is at the top of the pyramid at Victory MMA. Every single time someone shows up new, they're a white belt. When they show up here and they take their first class, that pyramid gets a little bit taller and Dean Lister gets a little bit better from one person showing up here because that one person's gonna train in a different way and he's gonna prop up somebody else and that little movement raises everyone up. By the time it gets to me, I'm going up a little bit and then Dean's going up just getting a little bit better. So what happens I think is these ideas when you first hear them, they're just sort of there and you don't connect them. And then as you start to connect them together, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, as you start to connect them together, they start getting taller and taller and taller and taller. And you start to see more connections. And really for me, this is, it does boil down to what made me start to connect these things was jujitsu. The fact that I could see in jujitsu what I saw people supposed to do in the battlefield, those were the first two connections that I made. And, and it's probably because I heard it somewhere. I'm sure somebody said, you know, martial arts are like combat. I'm like, oh, what does that mean, or whatever. But then I started seeing the actual connection between the two, and then at some point, I started seeing that, oh, those same things actually work in leadership inside of a team, period. And now all of a sudden, everything looks connected. And now all of a sudden, when you start, when you, when you learn a move in jiu-jitsu, when you learn a move in a jiu-jitsu and you don't know anything, that move is a, is a solitary thing by itself. It's unsupported in any way. You really can't even barely even utilize that move because it's just by itself. You know, you, you don't even know what position to get into. You don't know how to get into that position. You don't know how to set it up. You don't, have to, you don't know anything. You know that move, but it's, it's so easy to forget because it's not connected to anything else. The better you get, the more knowledge you have, all of a sudden you start putting these things together and now they become a system. Now they're all interrelated. And now when you see something, hear something, it fits in, you see how it fits into this overall broad view of things, which is why you know we constantly are quoting, if you see the way, if you see the way broadly, you'll see it in all things. And that's what this is, but it takes a certain level of understanding before you can see the way broadly. And you know, I talk to young guys that are going in the SEAL teams, and and they just have no. This stuff isn't even on the, it's not even on the radar in any way, shape, or form, right? And part of it is because they don't see the SEAL teams. They see the SEAL teams as like, oh, I'm gonna go make it through buds, and I'm gonna go and, you know, I'm gonna go run, and we're gonna shoot machine guns. They don't understand what this profession is. And it's better now than it was. I mean, the guys, when I, when I came in, I didn't freaking understand any of this stuff in any way, shape, or form. I barely even understood what it meant to, okay, you're gonna be part of this squad, and this squad has responsibilities to an overall, I barely grasp any of that. But as you start to assemble this information, and so that's what's hard. So going back to working with the client, 
like until you can start bringing things together for them, until they start connecting these things in their own head, that's another thing, is I can sit there and with a ball-peen hammer hit you with one spot and go cover and move, cover and move, cover and move, until you see that cover and move is connected to these other things, it's, it's very, very difficult to force the knowledge onto that, onto another human. Yeah. And I made the comment earlier about I wish I knew these things. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you simply can't at the beginning, just like you described. Like I said, Second Lieutenant Dave Burke almost can't know this, no matter how crystal clear these lessons are from World War II and forever back. And the other side of that, though, is that even even when you can, it's it still never ends finding more to know. Dude, I I taught at Top Gun. The 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 argument the the apex of aviation and the pinnacle and all these things that we use to describe Top Gun, this PhD level, graduate level system of combat aviation Top Gun. You know what I was teaching there? Cover and move. Cover and move. And do you know why I was teaching cover and move? Because the mistakes that Top Gun made, the students made to go through Top Gun, were mistakes. They weren't doing cover and move. Even at that level. The reason I was talking about simple plans at Top Gun, we didn't use the same words, but I was teaching that same thing, is because the plans weren't simple. And nobody really understood them. And they go out in missions and come back and, hey, why'd, why'd they screw that? Well, these guys didn't listen to me. Well, that could be it. But actually, it's probably not. What probably is is that you didn't explain it very well. The reason I was teaching these same simple fundamental things at Top Gun is that those are the mistakes that were being made repeatedly by some of the best, most experienced pilots in the world. And as I hear myself say, I wish I knew this stuff, and almost I now laughing at the phrase, know this stuff, mm-hmm. it's crazy how even now that I know it's so much more than I ever knew, what I really know is how little I still really know and how much more there is out there. And that's why every time you break out another book, I'm like, dude, that book was awesome. <laughs> Even though it's saying the exact same things they're all saying. Um, but that's actually, that's actually really good. Because we get to do this again. Yeah, we get to do it over and over again. Yeah and get to see it from a different angle and get to understand it a little bit deeper. Like when this example comes in, the pyramid goes up just a little bit more and it ties together another little part of your brain. And I often wonder, you know, there's some lessons that you cannot teach to someone, like they have to, they have to experience it, right? And there's unfortunately a lot of lessons like that. Yeah. Let's face it. Let's face it. That is the vast majority of lessons because everyone, otherwise, everyone would you know get issued a certain book at age twelve, and here's mm-hmm. what you need to know, and they'd be like, "Oh, cool, got it. Oh, okay, uh, save my money. Okay, eat healthy. Okay, you know, there's all these fundamental things that a human being could do. That if you did all these fundamental things, and and, and by the way, these are not hidden knowledge. These are common knowledge. These are these are just common knowledge things that everyone kind of knows. Mm-hmm. And yet, we think it's going to be different for us. We think we can. Well, I don't need. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And it's no, that's not going to work. No, it's not going to work. So, taking these 
things, and that's what that's another good thing is you have to experience them. Some in some way you have to experience them, and that's one good thing that happens at Echelon Front is you are in an environment where you get to use this stuff real world, and that's been interesting. You know, sort of after the first six weeks of the COVID lockdown, not even six weeks, the feedback we started getting was from from many of the companies we work with was this stuff really works. Yeah. And the reason that they were saying is because they'd never really been tested in it before. Yeah. You know, they're doing great. They want to do even better. And now they go and do better and they go, wow, this stuff really works, doesn't it? <laughs> so hard to learn. And the thing that makes it hardest to learn is if you fall into the trap of, I know it. I wish there was another, I'm familiar with it, right? There's got to be a lesser form of I know because I know is a there's a, that's 100%. Yeah. I know is 100%. There should be a lesser form of no. Maybe I'm familiar with. I, I, I understand at a decent level some of the concepts that we talk about. This is not new to me. Yeah, this is not new to me. That sounds a little bit, is that a little bit kind of? Yeah, it is. No, is it a little bit arrogant though? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's why. That's kind of part of the, the gig. No, I'm, I'm looking for a word that actually says, I'm very familiar with this, but I know that I have a lot to learn. We should oh, make you want a the word opposite. Of, yes, gotcha. I want the opposite of that. Okay, okay. Yeah. The word for how I feel. The oh, word okay. for how we should all feel. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you yeah. Which is, I am striving to be better. I'm familiar. I know that these things exist, and I know that I don't yeah. know like, them completely. Like basically saying you're a white belt at this. Yeah, maybe it's like saying I'm a purple belt at this. Yeah, maybe. which that, is that I'm just on the path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hoyler back in the day, a long time mm-hmm. ago, I did a website for him, and he was mm-hmm. at my house, and it was me and Kid Peligro mm-hmm. and Hoyler. What's up, Kid? What's up, Hoyler? Yep. And so we're me and Kid Peligro were he texted looking. Texted me the day after we had Hex on. He's like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at it, and he's like, hey, we're trying to integrate his. Anyway, we're doing some technical stuff, right? So I'm doing this. I was like, okay, this is what you got to do. You got to do this, I think. And he's like, hmm, maybe if we did this. So we tried it his way. Boom, and it worked. So it like you know it rendered on the screen. And Hoyler's like, it's his website, but he doesn't know this part. He's like, oh, I'm a white belt at this stuff. And it gave me that feeling that that you just mentioned right now. Like it reminded me of that mm-hmm. time. Kind of like he knows what's going on, but he has no idea yeah. how deep it goes. You know, in, in the back end like that. Yeah. Well, there's that. There's definitely that time period when you start jujitsu. And you, the first couple days, it takes a little while to go, wow, I really don't know a lot. Because yeah, in yeah. the beginning, you think it's finite. Yeah, That's the big difference. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning, you think it's 13 moves. And then you go, oh, wait, it's actually probably 35 moves. When I started jujitsu, I thought it was nine moves. I thought that was the whole thing. <laughs> I know, me too. Give me my black belt up in here. <laughs> I know gonna, the Americana. Yeah. I know the guillotine. I know the rear naked choke. I'm good. Yeah. What? 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 <laughs> Give me my black belt. And sure. then you get really good at it. And the better you get, the more you realize. Yeah. I don't know some. I don't know a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there we and don't that, know. And that's the way this is. That's the way this is. And you get the, And like I said, the biggest thing you gotta watch out for is that trap. The trap. And we gotta avoid the trap. And speaking of avoiding the trap, and sp- speaking of staying on the path, Echo Charles, yes. we want to avoid the trap 
of complacency. Complacency. We want to improve. We want to get better. We want to be better. Recommendations. So complacency and well, how do I, you know, where, why does complacency come in as far as working out goes? Because you think you're good. You think you're good to go Mm -hmm. or maybe you don't need it as much or whatever. Because here's a big one that's going to sound kind of offbeat. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But let's say you get married, kids. That's an easy one. Bro, to be my like, favorite thing is when people tell me, oh, man, I was really into jujitsu, but I, I got two kids. Yeah. And I was just looking at them. I got four kids. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. As if, well. Or I'm old. I've had people go, yeah, I'm just all old now. I'm like, how yeah. old are you? They're like, oh, I'm 42. I'm like, yeah. bro. But there's there's two there's two uh, kind of kind of reasons or excuses or whatever there when they're like I got kids that's mm. either saying I don't have time well okay so back to the working out thing when you when you after you get married there's two reasons kind of like oh well my focus is on something else now mm-hmm. you know meaning like I don't really have time to do these extracurricular things quote unquote and then the other one is um, I don't need to anymore. Because a lot of people, that's kind of whether they have it consciously or not. It's like, well, I don't need to necessarily be in great shape because I already have a girl kind of thing. Because part of their reason is to attract a girl. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And it goes both ways. It's a two-way street, obviously. So that can be one of the reasons for complacency. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I don't need to stay in shape that much. Most definitely. Yeah, I don't need to lift heavy anymore. Not to say you should be lifting heavy. not Not to say you shouldn't be. But I'm just saying that that's a potential excuse. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, lifting heavy or not, doing jujitsu or not, because some of us are not doing jujitsu, not recommended, but those are the facts some of the Meaning time. Meaning it's not recommended to not do jujitsu. Correct. That's a problem. But those those are the facts some of the time. See what I'm saying? Unless. Do you find it weird that I sit here and say that these kind of connections that opened the door to begin to understand some of this stuff came from this weird thing where you roll around on the floor with another person and try and choke them? Yeah. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. You know, um, from maybe, yeah, from the outside, I can see that. But the inside, you're like, bro, this this thing is just completely explaining jujitsu. You know what's a weird parallel as well? It's like lifting weights and just your human body. The human body, how it works is like the same thing. It's like a team of systems. That's true. Doing one thing for the other, you know. And they have to cover and move for each other. They got to adapt. It's like all this stuff. (laughs) Anyway, speaking of human body. You need supplements. If you're going hard in the paint, on the path, You used to say game. supplementation. It was kind of one of your go-to words, and now you've gone back. You know, now you're just saying, like, supplements. Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound more like markety? I don't know. I just was really used to you saying supplementation, which was not a normal thing to say. Right. It seems like maybe you're just sort of falling in with the norm. Maybe you got peer pressured. Maybe. All right, well, let's go back to supplementation because now that See, you I just said now. it. I feel good now. The way, like you just said I feel like it, you're back. You're back <laughs> with me. <laughs> cool, man. Well, you saying it kind of brought it to light. Like, yeah, I kind of like how supplementation sounds. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? When you're on the path in the game, going hard, which we are. You yeah, know, we are. Unless we're not. I don't know. Did but you lift today? I did not lift weights today. I'm going to lift not afterwards. Yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah, hardcore. Oh, yeah, for sure. Till failure. Anyway, your joints sometimes take a beating. Right? Supplementation will help that. As Dave Burke says, no factor. We got supplementation for that. Joint warfare, super krill oil, which I took both of today. I'm on the routine. Of course. I got some help from you, obviously, but you know, some people out on the interwebs, out in the field, 
you know, they're demonstrating that they can stick to that routine, leaving it out on the, the oh, counter. Oh, did you make adjustments? Yes, sir. You got them in your bathroom now? No. Where? On the counter in the kitchen where I always come down. I always okay. come down. See what I'm saying? But, but you said the bathroom was just a no-go, non-starter. Uh, well, you don't like to be eating stuff in your bathroom, even if it's just a little capsule. Given my <laughs> current routine. Yeah. I said I said go pills to be little. Brian Littlefield, that was the original thing. And I don't like to take, you, so there's, I didn't know this. There's a difference between a capsule, which has the little coating, it's got stuff inside it, and a pill is, a, is like a hard thing, Compressed. right? Yeah. And they're a little bit harder to swallow or whatever. I found the capsules are harder. Oh, really? I found, yeah. Well, that's too bad you, you're not in charge of a supplement <laughs> company. Because <laughs> the original go pills that he made were, I said, hey, make these things. I want to, you know, have the stuff in Dismal Glow, but make it, make it, um, make it, you know, smaller. So I, the whole story was, hey, man, you know this, Dave. You don't want to, you don't have to drink a drink before you go and sp- present to a group for two and a half hours because you don't want to have to say, hey, can everyone hold on a second? A little bio break here. No. <laughs> in fact, when people, when people tell me, hey, you know, for while you're speaking, we're gonna put waters up here, and I say, if I drink. If I have to drink during the next one hour, if I go, hold on a second while I'm presenting, I need to take a drink right now because my voice is dry. If I have to do that, we got a problem. I failed. You're not, you don't want to, you're not sitting there so you can see me drink. We're not drinking. Now, if I'm up during the muster, I'm on stage for six hours. Yeah, we're up there drinking and chilling and whatever. Plus, you guys are taking turns. Yeah, yeah. But the, so the go pills. I said, hey man, I can't be drinking a drink, filling my bladder up while I'm, you know, before, because I don't want to have to stop. Yes, sir. Can you make something compact, compressed? There you go. That's the discipline. Go in a pill format. Get that, get that mind cranking. So, just to be clear, the discipline go is a pill or a capsule? This, it is a capsule. Okay. Yes. So, the original one that. Be little made was a pill because that's what I had requested. Yeah. I told him the wrong thing. I didn't understand the difference. Gotta know the lingo, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so pill compressed. Yes. Capsule is a capsule yes. that you can unscrew and take right, the right, powder right. out. Gel cap, oh, which yes, is super yes, krill oil super krill. and D vitamins. And Those are gel caps. Yes, they are. It's different. So the three uh, delivery methodologies. Look at you. Just to be clear. Yeah. Yep. Okay. There you go. So, nonetheless, these things will help you on the path big time. Also, again, we mentioned the D three. Boom. That's a every. That's a daily. Mm. Those oh, are yeah. small too. So that's like kind of like no excuses. You know, some people they're like, I'm like swallowing swallowing pills. Some people like that for sure. This one, no factor. It's a gel cap, which is arguably. I used to take. I used to take pills one at a time. Yeah. One like so I would take whatever seven or eight pills. Right. So you. I would take one. One. Why one. just just I just didn't like it. Yeah. Kind of like what you're saying. I was one of those people, you and then I realized it was inefficient. It is. And I had to overcome this, you know, scenario. Bro, I'll tell you the technique to swallow pills. You swallow ten pills at once if you want. Well, I've never tried it, but I'm saying given the theory theoretically, because I, I, I what do I take? And this is all at once. Uh, two D uh two D vitamins. Oh, you take two of those? Yeah. I take, okay, go ahead. Uh, three krill oil, mm-hmm. three joint warfare, and every once in a while, I'll throw in two cold war. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Two, th- six. I don't know. I didn't do the math. Nonetheless, yep. it's a lot. Let's yep. say it's six. Yeah, I take all those at once. Yeah. 
all you got to do is when you drink your water with it. Wait, you drink water with it? Yep. Yeah, that, you know, some guys are advanced. They just boom. No yeah, that's, one speed. that's a hardcore dude right there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, but we're not all there, so we're going to drink our water with it. But, bro, all you got to do, some people, they lean their head back. Oh. Here's the thing. When you lean your head back like that, the Narrows pill, the, the ju- throat chamber? No. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but that's not what I found uh, as far as feelings uh. go. The uh, Those capsules that you talk about, they float in the water. Oh. You want it to sink. Mm-hmm. Really? The pills sink. Especially if they're coated with something. Got like it. Sli- anyway, so if you go straight up, straight back, boom, the gel caps float. Sometimes they don't go go down. Interesting. This is what you do. You turn your head to the side. Okay. See what I'm saying, though? Because, look, Noted. it still floats, but since it's to the side, it's on the side of your throat, not on the top of it. So it goes down easier. Five Learn, pills, six pills. Learn something new every day. One speed. There I was anyway. thinking I knew how to take capsules. Yeah. Now I learned the truth. I guess technically I shouldn't even say that's the best way. I'm just so saying currently I, that is the leading way. My little daughter was getting sick, and I said, hey, you need to take some Cold War. Yeah. And so then she's, she does not like to take pills or capsules. And I said, no problem. I'm, I broke it open, mixed it up in water. <laughs> it was water. You cannot do this. Because it is, it is, there's garlic in there, like a lot of garlic, which yep. is which is a, an awesome ingredient to have, but man, I mixed it up and it was nasty. Yeah. Try it with one just to just to kind of <laughs> just to kind of see. That would be a that would be a dis, that would be a, an exercise in discipline. Just mix up Cold War pills and just drink them like shots. Yeah, oh, man, I think maybe sprinkle them on some eggs or some or maybe some bacon or something. That might be something. actually interesting. But, interesting concept. But uh, that's the thing, though. I'm sure Cold War is not just garlic powder. You yeah, see what I'm no, saying? no. Of I'm course sure not. there's some like actual. But that's when you mix it with water and smell it. <laughs> you're smelling something <laughs> that's that the is strong. Around. All right. Well, nonetheless, however you choose to take these things, they will help you 100% in the game on the path. Mm-hmm. 100%. Don't forget about milk. Protein in the form of a dessert. Protein. Additional protein. It's not like you're not eating protein ever. But if you weren't, it would be. Boom. Now you are. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Boom. <sighs> what else? Jocko White Tea. Yeah. Yes. We're deadlifting. Not like we're not deadlifting. No, unless we're not. We I don't know. We should be deadlifting. We should be. I think so. That's my opinion too. Um, well, what does Jack White have to do with that? Because it allows you to deadlift eight thousand pounds. Is yeah. it eight? Yeah. 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 Well, that's the guarantee. Could well, be right. More right. Could be more. If yes. you go hard, I guess. Yep. Hey, you get all the stuff at the Vitamin Shop. The Vitamin Shop in your local AO area of operations. Yes, sir. Also at OriginMain.com. If you don't want to go to the Vitamin Shop, you want the delivery system. To your door, and you go, yeah, originmain.com. Also at originmain.com is jujitsu stuff, geese, rash guards. Um, you know, there's t shirts and you know, other clothes or whatever, but more importantly, actually, not importantly, but additionally, significantly additionally, jeans mm-hmm. and boots. There's something else coming, which you, that? you probably don't even know about. Because you're not really like, you know, building what? good relationships in your inner circle. <laughs> Apparently not. So, you know the, the material that the gi pants are made of? Yes. It's called atomic twill. Okay. So, and it's it's durable enough to be gi pants, obviously. And uh, I was like, Pete, what do you think? I could use just a pair of pants. Mm. So he, he made them. 
and they are freaking legit. Yeah, like so, work pants. Yeah, like thing. work pants, but they're yeah, they're basically just pants, but they're not jeans. Yeah, they're, yeah, they'll be coming. They'll be working. Not talking. Not you're talking. Yeah. Uh, yes, all made in America, yeah. by the way, which is a big deal. Fabric, cotton, grown in America, all the way to the to the to the deal. To what the about pants. what about like the things that you put together to make them stay up? You know what I mean? There's a certain thing there. What's that called? I don't know what you're talking about. What's it called that that keeps the two pieces of cotton fabric together? What's it called? I don't know. Not Velcro? the zipper. Above the, the zipper is the, <laughs> the button. The, the button. button. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The buttons. Yes, even the buttons are made in America. Works of art, really. Function and fashion, as it mm-hmm. were. Nonetheless, horjamain.com is where you get all this good stuff. Also, speak to, speaking of getting good stuff. Oh, wait, Dave, how'd you like the uh, Jocko Palmer? Gonna go. Go can. I liked it. <laughs> is it is it the top of your list? Or are you because you're on a what Dax Savage? What where are we? No at? hit on uh, on Dax Savage, but I was doing some Tropic Thunder. But now that now that Palmer's in a can, that's number one. Right? <laughs> it yeah. just just went to the top. Well, dude, Palmer powder is all I had. Yeah. And uh, the thing about Go is like I get them because I'm going somewhere. Or I'm on the go, so I don't have time to mix up the powder all the time. The powder was like almost a treat, almost like milk. Yeah. So I'm like, I got time here. I'm gonna get crushed ice. I'm gonna get the powder. I'm gonna mix it up. I got some time, and I'm gonna just now done. All day. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with the Jocko Palmer scenario. Like it's it was kind of surprisingly good. You know, when you think, oh yeah, oh iced tea and lemon, cool, nice, nothing mm-hmm. new. Hey, this is nothing new to me. Boom, take a hit. The sum is greater than the sum. What the is parts. it? The parts. You you see what I'm saying? But anyway, it was that <laughs> sort of situation. It's good. No good. Anyway, speaking of good, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. This is where you can get your t-shirts, hoodies, hats. Other cool stuff on there that represent on the path. Discipline equals freedom. Good. Take the high ground or the high ground will take you. All this stuff you can find. JockoStore.com. Really? Uh, you know, we think that it's cool stuff. But, you know, go on there. Check it out. If you like something, get something. In all these ways. By the way, if you just like the podcast and you want to support it, these are good ways to support the podcast. Because other than that, well, I mean, this, the podcast, we don't have it behind the firewall. <laughs> paywall. Yeah, paywall. Firewall, right? Firewall. That's what everybody wants me to do. Yeah. Put it behind the paywall. Yeah. They they, they want that because all the podcasts are now the new media stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. well. <sighs> Varying levels of advantage. We don't want to do that. We just want to do what we're doing. Yeah. And in order to do what we're doing. A little support is nice on that one. Hey, if you, and speaking of this podcast, subscribe to it, check it out. Echo Charles thinks that's important for me to say right now. I don't think it's unimportant. How about that? We also have another podcast that's out right now. It's called The Unraveling. The Jocko Unraveling Podcast. Daryl Cooper and me talking about things in the world and how things in the world, when you unravel them, you find out where they came from, why they're happening, and it gives you better understanding of the things that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. Used to be called The Thread. We had to change the name. There's also Grounded Podcast, which we haven't recorded in a while, but we're getting right on that. Warrior Kid Podcast as well. Don't forget about the Warrior Kid Soap, made by Aiden, who's up there in a farm taking goat milk at a young age with a running a business so that the entire world 
can stay clean. <laughs> we got a YouTube channel where Echo Charles is supposed to make videos, and he does sometimes, we'll say. Sure. I'm not going to argue with that one. Some of them have explosions. Music, sometimes. Yeah, some of them have music and other enhancements. Yeah. Skeletons. Sure. Fire. Sure. Tanks. Aircraft. Sometimes, yeah. Unless some don't. Yeah. And everyone that thinks that Echo Charles should put one Easter egg? Easter egg. One pleasant surprise into these three-hour podcasts. Like when Dave Burke says, a mortar exploded. There should be a mortar exploding in this room. Oh, Just yeah. momentarily. And then the conversation continues. Right. A lot of people think that's what should happen. So yeah. we all have a little bit of fun when we're watching a three-hour Yeah. We'll, okay, we'll uh, keep exploring that as an option for sure. So what else? Oh, yeah, psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. Don't forget about that one. Hey, when you don't feel like lifting, bro, I'll admit, yesterday, straight up, didn't feel like lifting. I didn't feel like lifting today, but I did. Yeah, but you already have psychological warfare playing in your head on repeat. <laughs> you know, one of those deals. Yes, I do. So, nonetheless, Unfortunately. If, if you want it in your head, maybe not on repeat, maybe repeat for a little bit. Yeah, that's how you get it. Go to, like, you know, wherever you can buy MP3s, Amazon, you know, Google Play, all these places. Get Psychological Warfare by Jocko Willink. What it is is Jocko talking in your ear, telling you why you shouldn't. Skip the workout. Why you shouldn't eat the donut? Pound that donut or the whole box or whatever. Nutter butter cookies. You know you get. Um, nonetheless, he'll you know he'll gently, pragmatically, logically bring you past those moments of weakness, and boom, you get you get stuff done. It's really good. Hundred uh, percent effective too. By the way, flip side canvas. If you want some kind of message to hang on your wall, my brother Dakota Myers making it for you. All kinds of messages, important messages. Check that out, flipsidecanvas.com. Got some books. One of them was written by this guy right over here, Dave Burke, The Code. Good deal, Dave. The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocols. What do you got? What do you got, Dave? Dude, still getting a ton of messages from troopers who are still on the path and in the game, and it's so legit to hear. Something as small as this little, what, it's a field guide yeah field guide we weren't really sure what to call no it. but it's it's been you it's useful yeah uh which has been awesome so keep those messages coming man i love hearing from them yeah this is like one of those things where you know i called it like a reminder almost but it it's kind of like okay cool a reminder doesn't make you know that much of an impact maybe on your mind but think about it every day at the, let's say at the end of the day right most of us don't think every single day most of us don't think how did i do today how did I do today in all these like critical areas as far as like making an improvement in what you're even doing? Imagine if you were part of anything and you never assessed that thing. Yeah. Doesn't even compute. Imagine if you wanted to make something better. You would assess that thing and see where you could improve it. Now imagine that the most important thing we have is our lives and people go through their whole lives without assessing where they are, who they are, what they're doing, where they're going. Most important thing you need to know on the battlefield is where you are. Yeah. Then you can move forward. Yeah. That's that's the that's the protocols in this book. It's funny, like you know when like you're a kid and you're trying to like I don't know make the football team, right? Mm-hmm. And you have like tryouts, which you know a day or a week or whatever, sometimes a week or whatever, and 
after every little session, you like come home and you're like, how did I do? How did I do? How did I do? That's just for some intramural football game. We're talking about life. See what I'm saying? Yeah. You would think it'd be more obvious. You would think. Yeah. That that book that that book would just be, hey, this is, hey, what are you guys doing writing this? There's, there's you know, there's this already exists. Yeah. What are you doing writing this? It doesn't exist. Now it does. Huh. The code, the evaluation, the protocols. Dave Burke, leadership strategy and tactics. What percentage of questions that you get in your constant leadership, as a as a leadership instructor, as a leadership coach, as a as an executive coach, what percentage of questions are answered that you have to answer that you could either answer on the fly and say, hey, here's here's a good way to look at it, or you could, if you had an extra 14 seconds, say, hold on a second. Go to page 237 in Leadership Strategy and Tactics. What's the percentage? It's a big number. <laughs> I don't want to do the math. It's a big number. I don't want to say it's all there because that would be, that'd be a lot to say it's all there, but it's there. Mm. And if it's not exactly there, there's a version of it that's there that will fit wherever you are. The other side is just, just read that book. Just read it <laughs> and it's there. Yeah, I, I think what's good about that book is the stuff that we're talking about today where you have to pull these other things and you kind of want to start fitting them together. I think this that book is a good step of taking these various principles and starting to see how they play into the world, which I think is a good thing. Yes. Uh, kids, you, you, you might have kids, you might know kids, you might as well get them on the path. Way of the Warrior Kid, one, two, and three. Those are available, those are helpful. I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you could get a kid these books, you are going to change the trajectory of their lives. And I know that's an arrogant and a, and a, and a bold statement to make, but I hear it all the time from parents, from teachers, and from kids themselves. It's, it's just, just please, just get it for the kids. Get it for the kids. Um, and then if you got a smaller kid, think about what it's like being a small kid. The world. You have to contend with the world. It's a scary place. We have fears to overcome. Mikey and the Dragons teach kids how to overcome fear. Discipline equals freedom field manual. How to get after it for adults and extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership, the fundamental principles of combat leadership that we talk about all the time that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. We have Echelon Front Leadership Consultancy. What do we do there, Dave? We teach leadership. (laughs) Now we help make the connection between all this stuff and the world that these people are living in and it's the coolest thing in the world because (laughs) I get to think about this stuff. We get to think about this stuff all the time. Yeah. Which is just completely awesome. Real world application. Yes on a daily basis into a multitude of scenarios and the outcomes are always the same. It's like, yes, we actually know what to do there and we can help you. Go to go to echelonfront.com for that. And look, you don't have to necessarily have us to come to you or you don't necessarily have to come to us. We had to cancel one of our musters. That bummed a lot of people out, me, you, all of us. We got bummed out. but. This is this is 2020. We are online, EF online. All the stuff that we're talking about, when you need direct contact to help get through things, to improve your leadership capability, 
to improve your team's leadership capability, to get you all aligned. Go to efonline.com. You might be thinking that, oh, that sounds like something where I'll go on there and and watch a video about something. And you, you will go. You can go and watch videos. But you can also come and ask Dave Burke a question. You can come and ask me a question. You can argue with me. You can say, actually, Jocko, cover and move didn't work for me in this situation. I will gladly discuss this with you. That is what we are doing with EF Online. So it's awesome. What I miss, Dave? Have you talked about EF? Because we have a whole new platform right now for EF Online. Good point. And yes. The, the, the feedback we're getting on that is how, how easy it is for people out there to connect with us directly in real time, not to talk theory, not to talk principle, but to talk, I'm having this actual problem or can you help me? Yes, I can. And then we're getting, we're getting feedback. We're getting sit reps. Sit reps. Hey, the thing you told me yesterday, I just did it. It worked. Thanks. And if you haven't, you need to tell people about this because the <laughs> EF Online Access is so legit. It's it's growing quickly, but it's growing because one of the other cool things about it is that we'll get a question. We're talking. We'll get a question like a little chat box. Mm-hmm. Dave, cut a question. But I'll be answering another question. Before I get to that next question, five other people, other troopers have said, hey, had the same problem at my job. This is what I did. And by the time I go to answer it, five other troopers have already engaged and helped them mm-hmm. and given them some. And so the interaction between the other troopers is just as good as the interaction with us. Yeah, and all that stuff is taking place. on. We have a forum in there too. So all that stuff, you can go in there and say, hey, my boss just told me to do this. This is what I think. And, and you know, one of us, EF instructors or one of the other troopers, you know, oh, I, you know what? I'm in HR. I'm the HR chief at my company. Here's what you should think about. So it's, it's just an awesome format. So it's an awesome thing. And even though we had to c- cancel one muster, uh, we do we are going to do the Phoenix muster September 16th and 17th, Dallas December 3rd and 4th. Go to extremeownership.com for details. Look, it's probably going to be social distancing. We're not going to have a bunch of seats, or we're going to have to give we have to put away a bunch of seats, so it's going to sell out quicker than normal. So if you want to come, check it out ASAP. We got EF Overwatch, and we are placing some awesome people from the military into executive leadership positions and leadership positions throughout the country in awesome businesses, people that, companies that want to have folks that understand the principles that we talk about here, go to efoverwatch.com. Whether you need leaders or whether you are a leader leaving the military, let us know and we will connect you. And then americasmightywarriors.org, Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, who has made it her mission to help families service members, Gold Star families all over the world. If you want to get involved with her, she is getting after it. And she has been for 14 years. And if you want to help out or get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want some more of my hyped up hypotheses or you want to hear more of echoes semi-serious speculations or maybe you just want to hear one more of dave's stringent stories (laughs) then you can find us on the interwebs on twitter on instagram and on facebook dave is at david r burke 
Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thank you to all the men and women in uniform throughout history who learned these lessons in blood and passed them on to our modern warriors who put them to use, put these lessons to use to keep peace in the world and to police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and border patrol and secret service. Thanks to all of you for making sure we have peace here at home. And to everyone else out there, remember these lessons. And first and foremost, remember how this book started that the paramount combat lesson learned from every operation is the vital importance of leadership. Aggressive and determined leadership is the priceless factor which inspires command and upon which all success in battle depends. Leadership is responsible for success or failure. So don't fall into the trap. We are not good enough. Go out there and be better. And until next time, this is Dave and Echo and Jocko. Out.